sharks and stingrays and octopuses and schools of brim and trevally and sea eagles and black cockatoos and it's you know it's like um it's like garden of eden type stuff so oh, it's just thriving with life you know which is such a, a beautiful thing to bear witness to <laughs> Bro, and he, <laughs> you have such a descriptive way of talking about like uh, landscapes and environments. Yeah, well, it's you know it's something that I guess I um I really uh, value myself. You know, it's uh it's something that I take a lot of you know spiritual nourishment from. I guess being a, a part of a, a landscape and and seeing that 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 incredible you know web of life that exists out there uh, and and that is really you know, external to the human and built environment that has just been that way for hundreds and thousands of years. And it's, um, it's really one of the reasons why I'm down on the South Coast is because it's so accessible. You know, I can kind of walk out my front door and, you know, and walk for five minutes and, and be on a, on a rock shelf under the full moon uh, with the kind of ocean breaking over the waves and go, well, you know, how many, how many people have stood here on this spot, you know, before and, and not see any signs of the human environment and, and kind of really feel that connection to mm. existence and nature and the world. I'm starting strong out of the gates. We're going yeah. deep. Love yeah. It. Going deep. And we're on. I hit record a few moments ago. <laughs> Guys, um, this is episode 68 of the Jungle Brothers podcast. Uh, we're going to rip straight in. We've got Paul West with us today. Hello. Um, thanks for coming, man. Pleasure. Good to have you here. Uh, T, myself in the house. Hello. Paul Fudfield is not with us. It's his rostered day off. We officially don't have RDOs, but um, Paul brought the terminology. CGNs have RDOs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've got the substitute, Paul. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Morning day Paul. off. Yeah. Um, man, I, I guess, well, first I want to say thanks to Panavorp for giving us the coffee that we're drinking today. They're Thank always you. hooking us up. But uh, Paul, could you, t- how'd you get here? Because it's been, for, for you and me, like you came here last night. Yep. You brought me a bag of oysters and a tub of cream. And then you jumped in and you did strength movement class downstairs. You jumped in, did jujitsu upstairs. Yep. And then we had a mad brekkie this morning and we'd never met before. It's been great. Uh, and, and thank you, Joe, for making me feel so welcome to you. I've just met you this morning, but it's great to be in the JB house. Uh, and yeah, it's, um, I guess to say how I got here, it was, uh, Two trains, two buses <laughs> from the far south coast coming up with my kids on the, on the school holidays. But how I actually connected with the Jungle Brothers, um, I think I just came across you guys on my Instagram explore feed. Uh, I, like I, it was either that or maybe like I follow the, the MoveNet hashtag, but I feel like maybe that, that's not you guys. Like I don't know if you've hashtagged that before. We don't use it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I had to think about it. Like, it must have been the Explore and, you know, you kind of see a little video of something happening. I was like, whoa, what are these boys up to? That looks like some uh, some interesting methodology for, for kind of physical training that they're doing and uh, followed it, saw that you're in Sydney, had a good look through the page and saw um, – what you were about and thought, wow, these guys, this really uh, aligned with the way that I like to approach my movement practice and, and my philosophy around physicality. Um, and really the way it was distilled down into, into the kind of the three words of fight, lift, move, you know, that's um, uh, because two years ago I did a, um, I did a level one certification in MoveNet, which, um, you know, if your listeners out there don't know what it is, it's uh, started by a French guy, Ouan Lacour. It's kind of in that 
Ido Patel, you know, movement philosophy, but Erwan's kind of like the, the, the outdoor man. Like pra- practical applicator. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the quantification of fundamental human movements and the progressions and regressions within that uh, with a big focus on doing it in the natural environment, but also being able to do it in the gym environment as a, as a training tool uh, with hopefully, you know, improving your outdoor movement as well. Um, and so the, and one of the first things that I learned in that was that they break down the, the kind of human uh, – sphere of movement into um combative locomotive and manipulative do they <laughs> yeah which is like a which is a really boring way of saying fight lift move I think it's, uh, or like a quite complicated mm, combative yeah start now manipulation <laughs> uh, onto the locomotive there boys uh and and it just it really it really resonated with me that that modality uh because it, it made a lot of sense to me i you know i was telling you joe uh, when we were heading out to breakfast um you know that this, my visit into the gym last night is probably like the fifth time I've ever gone through the doors of a gym in my life. That's bananas. Uh, nice. Yeah, you know, it's like, and a lot of that's had to do with the fact that I've spent a lot of my adult life living regionally. You know, that's, I mean, that's excluding like jiu-jitsu gyms, but like an actual dedicated, you know, physical training space. Uh, and so much of that has been because the, the, the practice doesn't really resonate with me like the idea of kind of sitting in a you know a controlled range of motion machine and pulling a pin out and putting it on number 10 plate or whatever and just sitting there and pushing and listening to your headphones and i don't know that I, I in the mirror in the mirror yeah exactly like the mirror. Yeah, yeah, doing it baby. next to other people that you don't talk to yeah yeah there's no connection <laughs> you actively avoid them yeah you're not connecting with the people around you you it, it felt like you're not even really connecting with yourself you know you're kind of just you're off into the the world of your headphones and you're just doing this movement on autopilot like there wasn't a, a consciousness to it so I, like I guess I really avoided that and um, I, I started to go down that that training path because um, I uh, when I was shooting River Cottage which uh, which was a program that, that I made for Foxtel a few years back I had to get uh, like in season four I had to get a medical assessment because you know I was the host so they had to insure me you know if something wrong like there was a lot of money at stake if I got sick and so I had to go to my local GP and they you know they you smoke, blah, blah, blah. Do you do this? Do you do that? Step on the scales and measure your height. And I kind of sat down and, and um, I was waiting for their feedback and they're like, okay, so, you know, you're, you're going okay, but like your BMI, like you're actually, you're technically obese. And I'm like, what? <laughs> no, yeah. no way. No, no, come mm. on. I'm like, you know, I grew up in the Hunter Valley. It's like rugby league territory. Like Sonny <laughs> Bill Williams would be obese on the BMI. And then kind of went home and had like a look in my, in the hard look in the mirror and like, oh, wait, yeah, no, I don't look like Sonny Bill Williams. <laughs> <laughs> and I probably am like getting a little, you know, a bit fat. Uh, and it's because I'd been gone from a career working as a chef where you're kind of doing 16 hours a day on your feet constantly, not eating a great deal. So you're your energy expenditure to your energy input was really high. Um, but then going to working in a TV production, even though I was working on the farm, like it still at its core was a TV production. That catering. Catering. That's Bro. what it was. Catering. Man, bam, you like three times a dessert. day with tea breaks. Yeah, you can't yeah. have dessert at the catering. Yeah. Oh. You've got to skip Ooh. dessert. Yeah, Always. so you learnt that the hard way. And like way. one protein yeah. is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't need the fish and the red meat yeah, and the, the white pork. meat but that's, uh, and chicken that's dishes. such an exercise in restraint, <laughs> you know, to have this like abundant spread on the table, especially coming from, you know, a career in my, for the bulk of my adult life where it was like if you could, you know, grab a small handful of food and put it in your mouth and chew it in the middle of service. That was, that was about as good as catering got for you. You know, it's uh, the hospo or the chefing trade. You spend a lot of time cooking for other people, but not a lot of time uh, eating. So, and you know, I was living regionally and I thought, well, you know, I, I can't, 
I can't really go and sign up for someone to guide me through this. Um, and I didn't really want to do like, a, that was, you know, maybe five, six years ago. And, uh, I, like online training was probably very much in its infancy then, like nowhere near the maturity that, that we've got now, especially post or during COVID. And so I thought, you know, I've got to do this myself and started like going, okay, I don't want to do like that traditional gym path. Like I just don't want to go on like punch plates or push, you know, machines or get on the treadmill. I live in this beautiful natural environment. Like I want to learn to move well and efficiently through that. And so it took me to the work of Erwan and MoveNat and, um, and as well the, the US biomechanist Katie Bowman, which I saw you've got one of her books over there. Katie, yeah, Yeah, which DNA. is, you know, yeah, exactly, Move Your DNA. That was the one that kind of triggered me down that path. And reading Move Your DNA, I was like, this is just, it's so logical. Yeah. It's like the human being is designed to adapt to input and the higher variety and, you know, and evolutionary we're exactly, you know, from a physiological sense, we're the same as what we were 10,000 years ago. We haven't changed, but the, but the nature of the inputs have changed significantly. And we're kind of these like zoo humans now, like where we're, you know, we don't, we don't move our bodies mm. in the way they were designed. Um, and so I thought, Prisoners. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we're sitting, we're sitting in our car, we're sitting Domestic in the Domestic farm home. animals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but and true and though fed yeah. and happy yeah, yeah. <laughs> but are we but oblivious yeah but <laughs> yes. I mean like that's right so much preventable health uh you know disease comes from from these kind of modern inputs mm. our lack of movement and our and our lowering in um nutrient density of the food that we eat so um so I took the I took that approach I'm like you know what I like I don't want to be obese like I got my first kid on the way I don't want to be like mm. not just dad bod but fat dad uh and uh <laughs> I kind of topped out at about 115 kids kilos and went blow this that's quite a lot of weight that's a lot of weight yeah yeah yeah. and like i felt like i was kind of carrying it pretty good you know how old were you at that time i was 30 yeah and but like i was still like running and working and like doing a little bit of you know kind of training just with myself body weight a little bit of barbell stuff so I didn't feel like I didn't feel like strong still strong like I didn't feel like I was like lacking Uh, and if you're shifting that weight around all day anyway yeah yeah, yeah. it's actually you're getting strong just yeah, carrying you get, your ass you around strong, okay. yeah, yeah 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 uh but you know but felt like yeah i'd probably let it go a bit and so i thought well you know i need to take proactive action with this like i need to have that discipline myself because i'm not going to be having a, you know anyone to train me or hold my hand through it and that led me down the move that katie bowman kind of path and uh you know after five years i'm back down to a much more comfortable weight of kind of 90 kilos now and so yeah, twenty five kilos. I could have been on the biggest loser. I should be selling <laughs> should have like carried ninety kilos. Well, yeah, oh, you're lean for yeah. ninety. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm blushing too. Yeah, I would have <laughs> thought you would have been lighter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I'm dense. Deceptively tall. How was he on the mats? Yeah. Hey? How was he on the mats? Uh, I didn't get to roll with him, but you oh, looked good, oh, man. Lucky. You, yeah, you were moving well. Just for reference, I am like an unstriped journeyman white belt. You just so go it's for that Joe knee. Would clean me up. Yeah. <laughs> I like the way you said that. Like You're like, I'm a journeyman white belt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never heard anyone in JITS refer to themselves as a journeyman, but yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great label. Yeah. Well, that's what, what happens when you, you move, you oh. know, and you live regionally and you can't commit, you know, you can't be in one place, one gym under one black belt. You just, you know, I drop in and out of different, different jits gyms. The wandering samurai. Yeah. I was, a, a, I was a journeyman brown belt for a long time. Yeah. I've been a brown belt for as long as I've done, like for the same amount of time it took me to get to brown belt. I've yes. been a brown belt and I didn't, uh, and I kind of, ne- I had for a long period of time there, I didn't train. I just had the brown belt and I kind of stopped. The gym was the focus. And then I was like, yeah, maybe I'll just leave it at that. You know, yeah. I'm just kind of not that I'm engaged happy. by it. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, 
I'm still a savage. Brown belt's still respectable. Yeah. But then I ended up getting back into it and connecting with a coach, and then and now I've now I'm like I'm most definitely not a journeyman now. Yeah, yeah. But it's cool how it changes. Yeah, and when I mean, it, I think for me, like uh, that, the jujitsu was the last piece of that puzzle as well. You know, that's um, finding something that that uh, had uh, like a, a physical out- outlet that your training could work towards. You know, like not being fit just for the sake of being fit. You know, like you're lifting all this weight, you're developing all this movement, but what's the the end game for it you mm. know it's where like, do you get to play yeah exactly like where do, you, where do you get to test that yeah 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 mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and 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 the, i loved the fact that it was you know I, I first went to a gym in melbourne uh and like day one like you're, you're rolling it's not like okay do mm. six months of like technique and form and then you know once you kind of show that then we might put you into some light sparring it's like okay new guy uh we've done the technique we're all warmed up and roll <laughs> so you get to you know you get that instant kind of application and and, and get to learn on the fly really really quickly and i think for me as uh, at that stage when i first started we just had our second kids and uh, my wife and I had had our second kid and we we're real kind of deep into that young family mode, which is, um, you know, which is like savage in its own way, but not kind of like a great expression of physicality. You know, it's the savage because of the lack of sleep, of the stress, of all those other things that are happening. So to be able to go and just blow off the steam for, you know, for an hour, a couple of times a week on the mat, my wife, at first she was like, oh yeah, no worries, just... You know, you just go and do your jujitsu while I stay here with the kids. Uh, but then she saw that, like, I came back as this kind of much happier, more grounded, more folk, you know, more centered person because I'd had that opportunity to outlet. Like she bash someone, yeah, exactly. Or she <laughs> she outletted to her friends, you know, yeah. like her outlet was catching up with her girlfriends who had kids and you know swapping tales while the kids played and you know kind of comparing experiences. But for me, that wasn't an outlet. That was like a okay. So we're having, having a chat. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's 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 like um, it's pretty a great way to be to stop the mind chatter when you've you know you've got someone with neon belly, you know, yes. and you're trying to des- desperately escape that position. You know, you're not really thinking about what, what was that I had to do in the garden out there tomorrow. Oh, it doesn't yeah, give you no. a chance to to drift, does it? No, 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 no. You've got it's to form be, a meditation. Really, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I agree. Yeah, being yeah, in the yeah. present. Yep. Yep. So that's um. So I guess that's a that's the kind of way that I came to to be here. And um, during lockdown, you know, I've started working with a mate on his oyster lease, and there's no mobile phone reception down there. And I was doing you know quite a repetitive task uh, in a in a shed, and so I'd download some podcasts uh, at home and listen to them. And and uh, so I started downloading the JB podcast, and that was so it's not very nice to kind of sit here and actually see your faces because your voices are very familiar. Uh, <laughs> that's so cool. And um, yeah, and then I just remember I think you know a couple of weeks back you post said that there was a new app up and I just, you know, had been following JB for a while on Instagram and just, you know, dropped a comment and was like, love, you know, love the content that you guys are putting out and I'm really enjoying it. And I got a follow back. I was like, oh, how good is this? Thanks for the follow back. I'd love to come and train with you guys one day. And here I am. I think it was was you, Joey, that was like, well, don't just come and train with me. like the podcast. Come and have a chat. Jump on, brother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seem like a nice fella. Yeah. yeah. Well, looks, you know, and sounds can be deceiving. <laughs> <laughs> Did you grow up on a farm? Mm-mm. No, I grew up in a, in a, a very rural community, uh, yep. Murrurundi. Um, being able to spell that from a young age is what I credit my high level <laughs> of adult literacy to. Um, so it's 900 people, top of the Hunter Valley, before you go over to the Liverpool Plains. But Mining we, town. Uh, no, 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 no. It's um, 
there's like Scone, Musselbrook, Singo, definitely uh, mining towns. But Murrundi, it's just it used to be the end of the line for the the, the like early days train track. Uh, so it used to be this like town of like five thousand people with thirty pubs, and but now it's you know they punched a hole through the mountain and that was defunct. But um, there's a big horse stud there owned by the Sheik of UAE, and that's about it. Holy oh, wow. shit. Yeah, yeah, Emirates so that Park. That holds a, holds a town together in a way. In a way, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. There's a lot of employment there, uh, and the rest is just kind of this, like, lo-fi, low socioeconomic, but, like, big heart, big community kind of place. And mum and dad, we had a small business, uh, or they had a small business called the Murrurundi Trading Post, which was a uh, firearm retailer. Oh, wow. So I grew up oh. in a gun shop. <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> and they, so, you know, it was like, that was the kind of core part of the business, but they also had, you know, chainsaws and like Levi jeans and, you know, big boots. It was like a toy shop for farmers. Nice. You know, so, quad so, bikes? Quad bikes, yeah. Quad bikes, Sick. ag bikes, like small motor repairs. So all, the, all those kind of bits. So, you know, and I'd, I'd just, as so many children of small business owners do, you just grow up at the business, you know, and, um, so it was a really interesting experience uh, and exposure for me as a young kid because, you know, they had a really broad customer base. Like you'd get dudes that, because it's kind of mountain country up there, you'd get guys that live in like three-sided corrugated iron lean-tos, you know, in mountain camps that come down to town for flour, sugar, tea and reloading gear. <laughs> for, you know, uh, and they'd come in and they'd be wearing like you know, double pluggers and blue singlets and shorts all year, no matter what the weather. And then alternatively, you'd have the sheik from the UAE come in, like he actually came in. Jesus. Like, and like- With an entourage? To, with an entourage, like fully, you know, full entourage. What did he buy? Vehicle. He wanted to buy a firearm. I was going to, uh, yeah. Except my mum run, yeah, well, my mum right. was the front of house of the shop and he was like, you know, just a cultural difference, didn't want to buy a firearm off a woman. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Holy and, shit. And also like was- didn't want to have to go through the process of being licensed or, <laughs> you know, or having to go through that criteria. And Kerry Packer was the same because they've got the Packer family's got their large private property up there as well at Elliston on the western flanks of the Barrington Tops. And he came in one day and um, and was like, I want a gun. And they're like, well, you got a license, Kerry? And he's like, no, I'm Kerry Packer, you know. Mm. Uh, and basically put a blank check on the table and said, I want a gun. Uh, and they're like, look, you know, you've got nothing to lose here, Kerry. Uh, but if you go and shoot yourself in the foot, uh, we're the ones that go broke, you know. And so they're like, just get your farm manager to buy one. Like, we mm. know him. He comes in here every week. Like, get him to buy it for you. And then what happens on the farm? We don't care. But just, you know, I really enjoyed that even though it was a really small town, getting to have that. Diversity there. Yeah, 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 that exposure. And, uh, and also, I guess, getting to see um, the power of community. I kind of touched on this with you, Joe, a bit before um, because I, I currently live in a small town of 2,000 people myself and, and realising that, um, that, you know, country towns, you get out what you put in, really. Like if, if, if you kind of think that like nothing's ever going to happen here or, you know, it's kind of like a dead-end town and, you know, we don't get any cultural events or we don't get any big shows. So it's going to give you... Yeah, 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 you know, but, but if you organise it, like if you get the committee going and you put in and you like raise the funds and you like make the connections, then that stuff comes. And, um, you know, we, my parents, you know, without being like weirdo, like soccer mums and dads got on board all the sports that 
my sister and I played and, you know, like in any small community group, they're always looking for board members, secretaries, presidents, treasurers, blah, 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 blah. So they'd always jump on the boards and like we were the smallest town in the Upper Hunter Valley uh, and the poorest town in the Upper Hunter Valley. But like we always had slick new uniforms and like <laughs> like nice. sweet caps and, you know, good gear and like our grounds. And were you like the, the, the captain of the first 15? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Thanks, <laughs> thanks dad, uh, slash yes. president. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Nothing, nothing like that. It was all, it was all very egalitarian youth sport up there uh, in the in the Hunter Valley. But, but you know, I, I saw that, you know, if you want like a new a resurfacing of the tennis courts and then chuck four weeks worth of sausage sizzles on, you know, like <laughs> if you want like kids to get good at tennis, then reach out to a, a pro in Newcastle and, mm. and pay him to come up and run a school holiday workshop. And we did all that. Like my parents did all that. So we had this exposure to, um, you know, to kind of like punching above the weight of a small town like that. And I never really appreciated it as a, as a kid. I just thought, this is the way it is, right? Like, you, you know, it's cool. You, things happen in little towns. But then talking to other people that grew up in other places that maybe didn't have that, that same kind of drive in the community, I was like, oh, wow, no, we actually had something really special. So, so I guess that's one, one of the other reasons why I'm here, you know. How I'm, I'm getting proactive, like, to, yeah. you know, <laughs> Jungle Brothers visit to Bermagui's. Uh, <laughs> 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 How's the calendar looking up there, boys? Oh, September's looking pretty open at the moment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How did you get from, how did you get from a from from working in a gun shop yep. into the kitchen? Uh, so when I when I turned eighteen, I I guess I realised that I'd had quite, um, despite seeing a fair bit of diversity at that shop, had a relatively insular upbringing, you know, in terms of like social connection with people beyond an immediate community and that adaptability of being able to, to relate to a larger population. And I, you know, I moved down to Newcastle and, you know, I was kind of meeting people at my same age and I just felt like I was like 10 years behind, like in terms of, you know, my world exposure and my naivety and my like social abilities, because all my interactions had been with, you know, people that I'd known since the day I was born, you know, and like a, and a nuclear family. And so I, um, I, I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to go to university because that's one form of education, but I feel like where my education's lacking is like a form of worldliness. Like I remember I was working as a kitchen hand at a restaurant and there was like a couple of backpackers there from New Zealand and they were like telling me about all the places they'd been in Australia. And I went home and looked at the map and realised that I'd kind of been as far north as the Gold Coast, as far south as Sydney and as far west as Dubbo. <laughs> and I was 18, you know, I was like, wow, this is a big continent. And I've lived like this in this like tiny thumbnail shape uh, around the Hunter Valley there, around the East Coast. And um, so I went for a bit of a journey around Australia for a couple of years and then I came back to Newcastle and I was working. Did you do like the full loop? Did you go? Uh, I cut Australia off WA. Or? Yeah, which, okay. which, you know, they'd be glad to hear now considering I think they're pretty much diverting all that mining equipment to digging a giant trench yep. along the border. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, currently, I think they'd like, like to be, you know, um, yeah, a different nation at the moment. But no, I got, you know, and I hitchhiked as well, which was like for me huh. like the ultimate kind of uh, going in the deep end way to, to, to do it, you know, and to, to kind of push yourself beyond your comfort zone to be like, well, you know, I could like book a bus ticket or- Do you have any creepy experiences? Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know about like creepy, but like I, the, the best one I had was in Tasmania. And um, this was pretty early on because I got down to Tassie early uh, and I was hitchhiking up the East Coast. And this, like, this dude in like a rusty old Kingswood ute picks me up. And he's like, where you going, mate? I'm like, oh, I'm heading up to Lonnie. He's like, yeah, I can get you most of the way there. 
And, you know, and he had like, you know, three teeth and, you know, he was smashing cans of Woodstock and he was like, had a little pipe. He was smoking a bit of weed, like driving, like all this while driving <laughs> along. And he was pretty, yeah, he's a nice fella, you know. He's like, we're having a good chat about life and stuff. And he's like, oh, so you're travelling around, are you? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, you probably want to see some stuff, don't you? You don't see anything, hitchhiking. I'm like, yeah, that'd be, yeah. He's like, oh, oh, there's this amazing waterfall. You've got to see it. Oh, you've got to see it. I'm like, okay, let's do it. And he like, so we, we're on the kind of East Coast Highway and we turn off to go to this national park and there's signs for a waterfall, yeah, like National Park Waterfall, this is all cool. And we kind of like drive like 20 minutes off the, off the, off the highway and we're kind of going down into this deep bush and we get to this like National Park car park and, uh, you know, no one else there, like no sign of human habitation except like a little, you know, National Park information stand and he kind of rolls the Kingswood ute up to like parking and like kills the engine pulls the handbrake on takes a breath for a moment and then looks over at me and goes you know I'm gonna kill you now don't you <laughs> 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 oh, and like I kind of just laughs like that like half you know confidently calling his bluff half questioning whether or not I was about to be murdered uh, and then I was like nah no you're not and he just lost his he lost it he like cracked up he's like oh, <laughs> uh, I told that to this other bloke last week and he jumped out of the car doing 60 k's an hour <laughs> <laughs> but by and by it was pretty friendly you know it's, um, I never yeah I never really feared for my life in that but um <laughs> except for that moment it was he was like yeah massive mind games he loved it he's like and obviously it was an old trick an old trope that he pulled out on anyone that he picked up you know he's like oh, was there a waterfall there was and it was spectacular oh, like he actually it was actually a really beautiful spot and i was really grateful for him kind of to take me and and showing showing it to me what a horrible <laughs> thing to do someone <laughs> <laughs> oh, phew, all good especially around that time that was like the oh it was ivan malat that, that was era. and it was like ivan malat era and like oh. it was the year that wolf creek Oh, came out in the movie, cinemas man. so like dude i touch base with like my family <laughs> and my mum's like i saw the wolf creek movie he's like i don't care where you are like just just let me know i'll get a flight i'll get a flight come home please there's killers out there uh but by and by it was like actually it was kind of the opposite of that it was just like hugely generous and hospitable like people be like you're sweet for somewhere to stay like i'm going to my you know I'm, this is my town you can stay at my house tonight if you want i'll give you dinner you know i can take you maybe a little bit further tomorrow morning and i'll just turn around it was um yeah it was actually a really kind of friendly experience which um which i really liked but then i go back to newcastle and i was about 22 by that stage and um, no trade, no job, no, you know, no degree. Uh, and I was working in, uh, for a mate's kitchen as a kitchen hand. And um, I was like, you know what, maybe like, I don't mind this work. It's pretty, pretty enjoyable. Like I can see there's good employment prospects. And I said to him like, oh, Simon, why don't you put me on as an apprentice chef? And to him, that was like fantastic because he went from paying me as a casual dish hand to like a first year apprentice chef so like i got to work four times as much for half the price <laughs> while still doing the dishes Happy to help you out, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's like oh great idea paul <laughs> uh and then you know i um I, that was that restaurant was on um you know the the thriving uh newcastle dining strip of derby street in cooks hill there it's one of the two kind of dining strips in newcastle but the um the business itself was essentially a um a, a tax hole the uh it was like the it was owned by family and the other core business was a used car dealership and so the restaurant was purely to lose money i think just like to, to write off tax so right. it wasn't it wasn't like a, a great place to be learning the skills uh required to to, to be a good hospo practitioner so i um in the end i uh after doing six months there they kind of just folded into a, like a 
you know, a descent of madness, that place, because it was just, it was a crazy, crazy madhouse. Uh, and I thought, well, I want to make a go of this trade. Uh, I want to, I don't want to come out at the end as a bad chef. Like I'm going to, I'm going to be doing the hours anyway. I'm going to be getting the low pay. I want to come out as a good chef. And so I thought, well, there was only one really good restaurant in Newcastle and they were full in terms of staff. And um, so I, I thought, well, I, I don't know, like, I don't think I want to live in Sydney because... I didn't know that I could afford an apprentice chef way just to live close to the CBD and be able to, you know, because that's usually where the really high-end restaurants are. So I went, okay, I'll move to Melbourne. And I uh, got the Age Good Food Guide, started at the front, and the top restaurant at the time was Voudemont, which was Three Hat, uh, which is, you know, the, the pinnacle of the restaurant grading in Australia. It was Australia's best restaurant at the time, um, you know, awarded multiple times. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll start with these guys. Why not? And... Um, sent him an email, you know, kind of groveling as a young apprentice going like, oh, you know, I'm sure you guys get, you know, thousands of people wanting to come work for you, but I'd, I'd love the opportunity to come down and, you know, prove myself and have a go. And really what I didn't realise is that that kind of environment and that kind of business is they're just like always looking for fresh flesh Shared for the fire. Out, oh, yeah, out. absolutely. Huh. Like 90-hour weeks. And use and abuse. And like <laughs> they had zero Melbourne or Victorian staff because it had such a bad rep. So like oh, when wow. they get Shit. like a, you know, an enthusiastic email from like a young, uh, you know, apprentice from <laughs> interstate, they're like, oh, yeah, come down. <laughs> come down what, on your trial. That's <laughs> what we do with young personal trainers. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to show you how to do everything. You have your own Jungle Brothers in no time. Clean that toilet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so yeah. So I, um, I spent like a week's wage uh, on return flights and hostel accommodation to get to Melbourne as a first year apprentice chef, and flew down. And uh, you know, I was kind of working on this like casual dining strip in Newcastle with a you know faulty towers esque restaurant. Uh, you know, only doing forty hours a week with like you know no split shifts. And then I landed like the pointy end of the Australian restaurant industry, and it's, you know, Gordon like, Ramsay's hell. Kitchen. Oh hell yeah, yeah, yeah! Gosh, like don't. it was like <laughs> it was like a pressure cooker in there, huh. man. It's like the kitchens I went in had three staff, you know, and I remember like standing out the front and going, um, you know, hi. I'm here for the job trial and they kind of took me behind the curtain and out into the kitchen and it was a Tuesday morning, which is like the in the shit day, you know, because they shut Sunday, Monday, usually the whole menu, which is very complex and, and large, was prepped from scratch on a Tuesday morning. So there was like 20 chefs in there, heads down, like manic pace. And uh, I remember just like being walked through there and it felt like the closest I could imagine to being like trotted through, you know, a prison as a new prisoner, you know, like all these hardened old vets <laughs> like going, huh, wonder how long this guy will last. <laughs> <laughs> and like not having a single bit of bench space to work to, I remember they're like, just grab yourself a board, get on the prep, here's what you need to do. And like just finding this like tiny little like, you know, shelf about that big to stand there and standing there with like splayed feet, <laughs> like chopping like this, kind of <laughs> taking it all in. Uh, and, you know, and then doing like a 16 hour day, which is the first time I'd done one of those. And Fuck. and just like not breathing through my nose at all the whole day, just like going, <sighs> <laughs> panting uh, and then kind of being spat out into the cold Melbourne air at 11pm going, what, what just happened? Like, do I want to do this? And I really distinctly remember like on that day one of the trial, like going up to that, like they've got like a mezzanine change room like you guys got here at JB's. And, um, you know, the head chef took me up and said, like, get changed, get your whites up here and then come back down straight away. And like standing in that kitchen, like in my civvies, getting ready to put on my chef's uniform going... 
I could probably just like escape out the back gate right now. <laughs> I could probably like do I like if I put my chef whites on, I'm like I'm I'm in, but that looked really intense down there. But I was like, no, you've like spent a whole week's wage. Um, and so yeah, and the trial went well, and you know, I flew back to Newcastle, and I got the call two days later. No surprises, saying yeah, we'd <laughs> love you to come and uh, and sacrifice your life for the greater good. And uh, yeah, two years later, um, I survived in there. So. That was intense. Nice. Dude. Man, 90 hour weeks, killer. Is there any kind of mentorship going on? Was there someone um, like, hey, hey, young fella, let me, <laughs> uh, there it's was, hard in here, let me give you a hand. Like it's, nah, no, no, no. You were very- um, Got to fight for the knowledge. Really, you did, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, like you just had to fight for space. You had to fight for equipment. Like it was a really, it wasn't a great culture. You know what I mean? It was like, it was kind of every man for himself in there. Like there was, there was camaraderie, of course, like because you were kind of, doing this shared suffering with the similar people, especially the guys that had been, you know, working with you for six months to a year. Like there was a really kind of close camaraderie there, but then really like if you needed a certain pot, all bets were off, you know, cause like you needed that heavy base, large saucepan to get your stock sorted. So you'd be ready for lunch service and it might take you two hours of use of that pot, but you get in and someone else has got it and they're going to use it for three hours. And you're like, I need that pot. Like, <laughs> I need, I, I, I don't think you understand me. I need that pot. Uh, and like people would be like, steal trays. And like I remember in one service, my tongs fell apart. Like they just disintegrated, you know. And I like, I looked at the chef and I'm on the fish section. So there's a lot of, you know, hot, hot pans. And like you need tongs to shift things in hot pans. I'm like, chef, like my tongs are falling apart. And he's like, what? What do you want me to do? He was French. He's like, what do you want me to do about it? You know, <laughs> Table 20 coming up now. How long? How long? How long? Uh, and so, yeah, like I guess it caught this like really like survival instinct that I like it didn't bring out the best in people, that place. Like it like you one thing I did. You a bit of that though. You totally. Yeah. Dude. Because what because what I was about to say was like one thing that Shut I learned up. from that experience was the capability of a human, you know, to be mm. able to go, I can work 16 hour days day after day after day after day after day on four hours sleep with like zero let up, like a 16 hour long high intensity workout. Like you hit it at eight and you're on and you leave at midnight and then that's it. Like, Mm. and then there is the one pace the whole time, which is flat out, (laughs) you know, and like, my diet was terrible and like, you know, no sunshine and like my, I lost, I lost height. Uh, because everything is like all day. all day, 16 hours over a bench like this. And like I lost long distance vision because one focal length is like you're just looking from your hunched height to a bench all day. Did you drink much? Alcohol? Yeah. Nah. A lot of chefs I know yeah. like to have a drink. Yeah. Well, we like- We're going to understand why. We tied it on, yeah. on like a, on a Saturday night after the final service. But um, but during the week, you, it's like you couldn't burn no the candle energy. at both ends. Mm. Like it's to, to, to like to go and drink or like, you know, everyone's like, oh, you work in these like fine dining restaurants. You guys are like on the bags, you know, surely mm. it's just like cocaine off the pass. <laughs> it's like one, I'm on an apprentice chef wage. So I'd probably have to save for like six years <laughs> <laughs> to be able to have a bump, you know, yeah. uh, but <laughs> so I'm not going to spend my money on that shit. Uh, but then to be able to back that up on four hours sleep and do, and, and, and like the, the, so not only is the pace unrelenting and, and maximal, but the, the, the precision required is absolute as well. Like the, when you're at a restaurant like that, you cannot fuck up. You cannot 
like absolutely zero chance for fuck up. Like the people are coming in and dropping four or five hundred bucks a head on a meal, you know, for a big deal. And like you've got this cascading effect if a mistake happens where the whole restaurant can go down. Like one little spoke pops off. And uh, so you've got to hold that space and make sure that everything you do on point. So to be able to like have that long-term endurance that like mental focus and like and also being able to look at a docket board and have like 30 tables up there on like a fully booked service 30 little bits of flapping paper and know how you were going to prepare each of your components of that dish to be ready in a staggered like timely environment it was um it was amazing like but but not sustainable yeah like it was great to see that capability and to know that if you dig in you can kind of push to that and and you can sustain it for a relatively long period of time but then like yeah no it wasn't for me i like after about 18 months there i remember like we just used to have these like crazy you know like you'd have the adrenal dump mid-afternoon because you'd like have the adrenaline of getting ready for lunch service you'd have a fully booked lunch and then you'd go into like a prep phase before dinner service and like that's when that was when shit got weird. Like because you'd like you're, you're tired, you're exhausted, you've just had a massive adrenal dump, and you know you're kind of like off with the fairies. And I just like remember sitting there prepping some stuff one day and just going, "What am I doing here?" <laughs> you know, I got swept along in the culture because it's like a, it's a real kind of like you you need to want to be here, and if you don't want to be here, there's the door. You know, and because like, because we're doing it, like we're the pointy end of the game here. Like, if you want to play with the big boys, this is how it goes. And so you go and get swept along, like, yeah, I'm doing it. Like, I'm playing for the A grade. Um, but then I was like, wait a second, like, I have no social life. Like, my body's deteriorating. Like, I've got my posture is like shot. I remember like the bottom of my foot peeled off in a shower one morning because like, yeah, like the whole- wet feet. But yeah, wet feet, like hot, dry, hot, dry, hot, dry, wet, dry, wet, dry. And like just standing in the shower, you know, at 7am getting ready to go to work one day and lifting my foot up and the pad fell off. I was like, that's, that's weird. That's not right. I don't <laughs> Like my whole, you know, like a giant blister. Uh, and so I was like, yeah. No. Your hands copper hiding as oh, well. Oh, you'd like- the good thing about working as a chef like that is you always got to see it on public transport on the way to work <laughs> because you got like all these funky like oven burn marks up your arm, like your hands are all covered in like you look like a junkie, like you're pale white, you punch over, you're twitching like this, you know, they just saw you chain smoke two cigarettes at the tram stop and you're going through your mise en place list, which is like your prep list before, you know, and your foot's tapping, like you've already got that nervous like intensity and people see that the and go, you know what, mate, just... You just see it. I'm just going <laughs> to go to the other end of the tram up here. It's fine. <laughs> they don't know that you're the elite of the elite yeah. in the kitchen game. Well, the, but the other thing that like didn't make sense to me in that environment was like if you're playing for the, the top side in a sport or if you're at the pointy end of any industry, you're financially remunerated for that fact. Yeah. But I was like, as a third-year apprentice, uh, I was probably taking home like 450 bucks a week Fuck. for 90 hours, oh, yeah. which is cool because you're, you're not, you know, you don't have any time to spend it anyway. So I was yeah. actually managing to save money while paying rent and doing all that because all you do is work and sleep, uh, but more so work. Uh, but but yeah, that didn't. I'm like, if you know, if this was like a sporting team, and I like this is like this is like playing for the for the Wallabies, you know, or the or wearing a baggy green cap for Test cricket. Like, I'd be getting paid the big bucks, and the big bucks are here. The boss drives an Aston Martin. Like, they've got the biggest collection of Dom Perignon in the Southern Hemisphere. Like, people are spending five hundred bucks a head. There's money here. I just don't see any of it. So I was like, you know what? Like, I don't like this churn and burn kind of thing. Feel like I'm being used. But I guess mentally I framed it at the time 
to, to not be like, you know, sad or depressed about it was that I am, I was at the best culinary university in Australia uh, and I was on a scholarship. It was hard, uh, but I was getting paid. You know, I wasn't spending money. I didn't come out with a debt. I came out with, you know, a kind of little bit of savings and, uh, and I got to put that place on my resume, which held me in really good stead for everything that happened after it. <laughs> so did you open up your own restaurant at any no, stage? Or? No, that, that just, that wiped, just that wiped the interest for me in that. Yeah. Like seeing that, you know, if that's the end game, that's like the real pointy end, uh, then I was like, nah, that's not for me. Like I like, I like being outside. I like, you know, having a life. I like, you know, waking up early and going to bed at night, not like going to bed at 1am, waking up at 10am and being exhausted. So, and I guess for me, I'd like, after that experience, I wanted to transition to something a little bit more outdoor centric. And so I wanted to take those skills that I'd, you know, I'd kind of developed as a chef at the very high end um, to, to, to more food growing, you know, to, to, to like gardening, vegetable gardening, market gardening, food production. And so, um, you know, I met my wife while I was working there. That was probably one of the best things to come out of that whole experience. Other, you know, like, I mean, that's not being very generous to, the, to, that, to those two years, but the best thing that came out of it was meeting my partner there. Uh, and we moved down to Tasmania with that kind of idea of, um, you know, getting on, eventually getting on a little farm down there and, you know, keeping like a, a small holding and keeping chooks and pigs and ducks and raising veggies and fruit trees and kids. And, and we'd been there for a couple of years and, um, and then River Cottage happened. Nice. <laughs> so question, and I'm asking this on behalf of my business partner, Joe, because he's gagging to be famous. Oh. How did you nail River Cottage? Oh, well. What I, am I going to do? I... <laughs> Whatever it takes, Joe. <laughs> and it takes a lot. Um, so I, I, I get asked that like a, a fair bit, um, you know, because people, because it, I mean, it was a real kind of stroke of luck for me to be thrust into the spotlight like, like that in such, a, in such a really kind of large way. Um, but, but, but the advice that I get people is really disappointing usually because it was, um, I, I was just living in Tasmania with the view of kind of doing the same things that the program was about anyway. That was like a personal interest area of mine. And uh, someone, um, someone got in touch with me, uh, a family friend, and said that they were casting for the host of River Cottage Australia and suggested they thought I'd be perfect for it and they suggested that I apply. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Oh, I had a bit of a look at it. Had a look, you know, I actually didn't have a look at the application. I just had a little bit of a think about you know, the, the process because it, it was franchised from a UK program with um, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall and that had been running for about 18 years and I was a massive fan of that program. And I thought, you know... Has it been 18 years? Yeah. I remember watching that when I was living in yeah. London quite a lot. Yep. I didn't realise it was running that long. Long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. From, from, you know, there was some, some big layoffs in there, but generally over a course of 18 years from... And you met him now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He came to the farm. He's a cool dude. Yeah, he's huh. a, he's a Is he a cool dude? He's a cool he dude. He seems like one he's of a really Sometimes cool yeah. they look like that and then you meet him for yeah. real and they're not. No, nah, he was... If anything, he was probably more so than what you get on TV. Oh, like wow. More of a legend yeah. in real life, you know? Um, but I, like, so I, I was a big fan of his, you know, as an individual, like I thought, man, this guy's so switched on. He's like, he's hyper intelligent. He's like really communicative and, and accessible and affable in that, you know, kind of British, you know, country <laughs> aristocracy way. Oh, I've got a double barrel last name and a red convertible and I have a farm. Of course you love me. <laughs> um, 
And I thought, well, you know, Australian version of it. It was about the same time that Top Gear Australia had come out, <laughs> and I like I seen how heavily that had bombed. You know, yeah. I don't even I didn't know we did an Aussie. We one. did like oh, two episodes. I think they they axed it like mid season. Like, was it anyone that we'd know? That it was, was like Shane Warne, Shane Jacobson, <laughs> and so, you know, it was like the, the Shane Club. Said, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, and I was like, well, you know, my name's not Shane for starters. So, and I'm not like if I, if it bombed and I was the host, like I don't go back to being Shane Warne. I would be the guy that stuffed River Cottage, you know, like yep. that, that idiot that like tried to franchise River Cottage and just ruined it. So I didn't apply at all. Um, and then on the very last day of application or the application window was open, I was like sitting at home at my house in, in Tassie and I was like, well, you know, well, it wouldn't hurt. Go on, I may as well just like fill out the application. Hadn't even looked at the application, got in like 6 p.m. and like thought it'd just be like a, you know, what's your name, what's your address? tell us in 50 words why you should be, you know, the host. Uh, and in reality, it was this like, you know, 10 page, like deep dive psychological <laughs> test. And I was like, oh, doing my chef typing skills, which um, is, you know, kind of like two finger typewriter uh, and like answering the questions and, and kind of thinking to myself, I was like, wow, these, um, I've got, I've got a lot of answers for these questions. And like, I, and the answers I was giving, I was like, as I was writing, I'm kind of like, well, I'm being honest, but I, I kind of feel like they, like they're going to think that I'm making these answers up to, to tell them what they want to hear. But it was like a lot of questions around food and community and, and, uh, and you know, things that I was really passionate about anyway. And um, the, one of the casting directors, so there was kind of three weird things that I found about afterwards about my application process. Uh, one was the, the, the series producer told me that one of the things that got me over the line was that uh, one of the questions in the questionnaire was describe your dream property. And um, they said that when they were reading it, he was actually sitting at the farm that would eventually host the program. And he's reading my application. He's like, this guy has just like described this farm. What he's looking at. <laughs> to, to, to the letter, to the blade of grass, including its like orientation, its soil type, its proximity from the nearest village, proximity from the coast, like a joint, you know, like everything. Uh, he's like, whoa, okay. So this guy, you know, well, he'll probably like this place then because it's a very accurate description. Uh, and the second one was that, you know, after I put my, sent my application through at, you know, stroke of midnight, the next day they extended the application window for another two months. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh well, if they had a good, you know, if mine was good, they, you know, they probably would have just given me the job, right? Um, but I talked to the, seri the, the casting producer that then went on to be the, the, sh the showrunner. And she said that like, you know, we left the office on that Friday and we were kind of like, oh, we've got some good applicants, but you know, we just, mm, you know, we can probably make it work. And then they came in the next day and there was one application that came in overnight and it was mine. And like one of the kind of interns read it and they're like, uh, Jody, you might want to, you might want to <laughs> read this application coming in overnight. And then they said, they never told me this until like many years after they're like, the, the guys applied, like have a read of this because like, we're pretty sure the dude has applied overnight. Like this, I don't know if he's making these answers up, <laughs> but like this guy I think is our, is our guy. Um, and so the third weird part of that was I actually went over to the UK uh, once we were right into the kind of third season of the show to, to visit the mothership, catch up with the, the Whittingstalls, uh, the Fernley Whittingstalls over in, um, over in Devon. Uh, and the, the, the kind of director that directs Hughes programs over there, you know, they're all kind of like, you know, Oxford alumni and, you know, kind of quite the wealthy, you know, London set. And they had this like schoolhouse up on the inner Hebrides, like on an island off the Isle of Skye in Scotland. And he's like, oh, well, you're here, Paul, you know, if you'd like a little bit of time away with the missus, like I've got this, you know, retreat 
up in the Hebrides oh, wow. that you're welcome to spend a week at. I'm like, yes, please. So we went up there and it's like, you know, you're, you're, so you're on Scottish mainland, you, you go over a bridge to Isla Skye, you catch a ferry to Isla Raze, you drive to the top of the island, the end of the road, and then you walk 2Ks into this schoolhouse. Holy shit. And it's just like overlooking the lock and it's like it's like the ultimate, you know, wow. like Hemingway writer's retreat. It's just like open fire, bookshelf, bed, kitchen, that's it. <laughs> and so we're in there. He's got this big bookshelf and I'm like, there was a title I was interested in and I started thumbing through it and then got to the back cover and found my name written in pencil. No shit. So he must have got the call about, you know, the (laughs) fact that they decided (laughs) to give me the hosting role while they're in that spot reading that book and he just like scribbled it, scribbled in there. I was like, I showed my wife, I was like, like, leash. Check this shit out. And she's <laughs> like, what, what? So it's a book on the over-exploitation of the EU fishing stocks. I'm like, yeah, babe, but there's more to it than that. Look at that. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's why I kind of thought, like, whoa, that was, um, you know, that was meant to be. And so, yeah, in the end, I got it out of 1,300 applicants. Holy you God. know, which was like the pointy, you know, I'd never really, I never really, like, wanted that, you know. I never thought big that gig. I'd, yeah, big gig, you know. Yeah. And, um, and I realised that there'd be a whole lot of sacrifices that came along with that, like the sacrifice of anonymity, most importantly, you know. That's, um, that, you know, you're kind of doing a primetime national TV production. Famous. You're famous. <laughs> hey, can't you tell? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they, oh, that's my driver out the front right now. Uh, <laughs> no, I think, like, what I do is at the, at the really, like, I don't even think it gets, like, a celebrity listing. Like, I think it's probably, like, X grade or something like that, what I do, which is perfect because I mean, I can, um, you know, I get to have this do Good this work. Fan, the fan base though, for oh, sure. River Code is a cult program. I'm just putting it out there. Oh, I yeah. think it's like, it's going to endure. Like it's, we last shot it, uh, first shot it in 2013, last shot it in 2016 and SBS and Foxtel are both plugging it still. And I still get heaps of people that have come to it for the first time, especially during like COVID lockdown. And it's like, because it's about like growing food and connecting to community and like cooking honest food, like there's a timeless kind of quality to it, you know, and there's, it's not competitive. Like it's not who's going to be eliminated from the farm this week. It looks like the pig. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's kind of like really good natured, good heart. Um, and I, I guess I kind of think of it as like the bush tucker man of its generation. You know what I mean? When, like you're, on the, when you're on the farm, are you actually living on it or is it like a, Kind of cut, cardboard cut, cut, cut out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually a down at Fox Studios. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> just a big green screen, like the Bear Grylls. Do you no, know Bear Grylls yeah. got Mars bars and stuff. He, yeah, you're supposed to be in a cave, like naked, yeah. in an ice cave overnight, and supposedly got. Uh, caught up the pub with the crew. Yeah, back to the <laughs> Ritz. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm just trying to tell a story here, really. It's like, you know, this is what I would do if I was in this situation. <laughs> yeah. Pound for pound, a pint of lager has more protein than an ice cave. <laughs> so, uh, so for the first year, I did live on the farm. So I've, I'm not on the farm alone. Or uh, the, the missus and alone Ritz. because I had two weeks' notice from living in Tasmania to start filming. Like I got the call, oh, well. they're like, you got the job, we start in two weeks. You said you could get up here in two weeks, so we need you here in two weeks. You're like, fuck. I, I was like, oh, I really, wasn't, uh, really wasn't expecting to have to follow through on that commitment, but damn it, yeah, man, I'm a word, bugger. Uh, and, um, and my wife, you know, she was in a, working in a restaurant in a very senior front of house position and they'd been really good to us as a family uh, uh, since we moved there, so she couldn't- Couldn't walk away. Couldn't walk away without really stitching up some people that were really good to us. So we, um, so we, I moved up and she stayed for six months. Uh, and uh, so I lived on the farm and, and did all the bit, but- did it get a bit lonely at all? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, it was weird. I, mean, I know you got your crew there during yeah, the day yeah. kind of, yeah, but then yeah. you- 
It was because you're like, like the crew would then go like they didn't stay on the farm. They were staying in holiday accommodation in Naruma, which is yeah. about half an hour away. So like for the first like, you know, week I'm up there just like twiddling my thumbs in this like big, empty, cold ass farmhouse, you know, like with no insulation and it was like it was ventilated, like there were so many gaps in floorboards. And so I um that's when I uh, hit them up. I was like, Yeah, you guys care if I get a dog? Uh, and they're like Genius! Oh my god, genius! <laughs> we knew you got the job for a reason. You want to get a puppy? Aren't you? I was thinking about getting Nate. We could, oh, like yes, he's going to get a puppy. All right, it goes up onto the whiteboard. Like episode two, Paul gets dog. What are you going to call him? Like oh, I was going to call him <laughs> Digger, and they're like, oh, we love it. So they were they were mad for us. So yeah, it did get pretty lonely up there. Um, but were, but you know, like yeah, we did have the kind of hustle and bustle of the of the crew, and it was actually kind of nice because I was like just thrown thrown under the bus in the production. You know, like going from like no media experience whatsoever uh, to, to, to like a high-end primetime like Foxtel glossy lifestyle production. It was kind of nice to then have that like defrag time at the end of the end of each shoot day, which go, the shoot days go for 10 hours. And, and it is like a, it's a stunning property. Like it's, it's right at the base of that Gulaga volcano. Uh, and, and it was in a really good season, like there were, you know, no drought, like everything was green and lush. And so it was right, nice to kind of connect with the, the actual, like the actual place itself rather than the TV production. Um, so I lived there for that first six months and then I went to Tassie, got my wife uh, and brought her back up. And we lived in the farmhouse for a bit, but she hadn't seen it during production because we'd do three month production blocks. And then the rest of the time it was kind of, you know, just ours to manage. And I was like, look, babe, like, oh... Like it's nice now, but when there's like 20 people here for 10 hours a day for three months, you know, we like the whole house was a production set, you know, it'd be like, you know. Nothing's private. Nothing's private. Like yeah. one bedroom, you know, <laughs> one bedroom and a little adjoining bathroom were the only private parts of the entire house. Uh, and so we we like, yeah, no, nah, no, nah, we're going to live in a, so we live on the farm next door. <laughs> uh, cool. We're there, we're there seven days a week. So, so it was, it was kind of a bit of both tea. It was like. It was like it wasn't maybe as kind of factual as the the program led you to believe. Like I didn't own the house; it wasn't my farm, but I lived there. I tended it for seven days a week. Like I fed all those animals, I grew those vegetables, I planted those nice. trees. Like I did. Like that bit was all real. But I guess the funny thing for me also was that like the realest part of it was when the when we weren't in production. Yeah, when everyone was goes gone. Home. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like the TV part was like. When, when the viewer sees it, they're like, oh, this is the real stuff. But I'm like, for me, that was like the least real part of it. Um, and then for the other, you know, six months of the year between the two productions uh, would be when I'd actually do the most farm work. Because when you're doing a 10-hour shoot day with like, you know, cooking, you know, indoor cooking shoots and stuff like that, you're not, you, you can't do the farm stuff. Yeah, we had to like, we had to hire someone during that time to do the farm work because I was so tied up with the production. And then when production wrapped, we'd... um. I'd, I'd do all that work that I was doing on camera, but not really, you know, it was, it was, <laughs> it was weird. slaughter was, anything? Yeah, 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 oh, for sure. Damn. Yeah, yeah. And that would have been, I'm guessing, you or you yep. did a bit of that on yep. in Tassie? We did a bit of both. Oh, no, oh, sorry. It was, um, I'd like, you know, I'd done a bit of hunting as a kid growing up, but like mainly just rabbits, you yeah. know, like shooting rabbits with the 22 and cooking them up in the camp oven. Uh, and I'd, um, when Pretty I was living confronting. In, Oh, absolutely. Dude, pig what, or well, the pig was massive. I've never the, done one, the pig but was massive. Pig get I, yeah, I saw a little clip of you talking about when you had to drive the pigs to the abattoir dancer. Oh, man, that was, um, yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty gruesome. So, um, 
Yeah, a definitely pretty lovable animals, aren't they? They pigs? are, and 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 you know, you you develop relationships with them. You know, like it's um because they're an animal that requires a relatively high amount of care and, and, and interaction. Sm- pretty smart. They're smart, you yeah. know, and so you're feeding them every day. Like some of the pigs that that we that I killed to you know to eat, I, I birthed as well. You know, I was like yeah, well. there for the like the the moment that they kind of came into the world and fed them every day for six to nine months before I then killed them as well. But that's um. It definitely made me appreciate um, quality of meat and the fact that uh, like a life has been taken, you know, for to put meat on the table. Like we're so sanitized from from that, you know. It's a bit you don't waste like, anything. No, 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 no. Because like you like like, like it's it's heavy. Yeah, you know, it's not just like oh, I might just like get some bacon. Ah, oh, you know, burn a bit, chuck it in the bin, whatever. You're like fine. Like I did. Like I raised this animal every day of its life. So I put like nine months worth of effort into its care and its love. And then like I had to like be the one that pulled the trigger on the day. Like I had to consciously like, you know, point a, a small firearm at it and go, that's it, you're done. Like, and I'm, I'm going to be the one that pulls the trigger. And so that, I mean, that takes, that's, that's hard. But I think they're like, there's, if there's reverence there, uh, which which like to a vegan or a vegetarian that might sound like a little bit counterintuitive, like it's like, well, if you've got reverence for it, why wouldn't you just not eat it? Uh, but I mean, I am an omnivore uh, and I, you know, and, and meat consumption has been a part of human human existence for a very, very, very long time. But I think if it's done with reverence and done in high welfare practices, then it's, it's not as bad. Like I'm 100% against factory farming. Like it's a, you know, packing things into sheds and, you know, and just like treating them as a production unit rather than like a, a like a being, uh, that, that's, that shit's criminal. Uh, but like the animals that we had on the farm, they had, you know, 300 good days, half a really bad day, you know. And, and when, especially if we like killed on farm, it was oblivious. You know, we'd like it. They'd be out in the paddock, green grass. We'd put a little bit of feed on the ground. They'd go for it and we'd shoot them point blank and they'd be dead instantly, you know. But then, like you mentioned, Joe, about like transporting them to the abattoir, which is the way every single – all the meat that we eat is processed through an abattoir. It's mm. a part of Australian food handling practices. That is high stress to the animals and to me. Like, you you know, they've lived their life on a farm. All of a sudden, you're packing them in the trailer or the back of a truck, taking them to an Very abattoir where they're on. Yeah, they're on. And there's fear. That would have the, to yeah. have an effect on the meat. And Absolutely. It? Yeah, Pumping yeah, yeah. it full yep. of adrenaline. And Absolutely. Getting it all tight yep. and shit. Yep, yep. Without a doubt. That's um, myopic shock, I think they call mm. it. It's uh, where, yeah, it floods like the, it becomes acidic and tough and... Yeah, and that's why they can't farm kangaroos apparently because right. they like because they can't be corralled or herded. Uh, they get so stressed that like they mm. that the meat's inedible, so kangaroo can only be wild harvested. Oh know? wow! Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, but that fast yeah, that, twitch muscle fiber. Yeah, yeah. There's um my my partner. She's she's quite into the regenerative agriculture kind mm. of permy thing, and she's been talking lately about. We don't have any. We don't have any property or, or animals, but we'd like to one day. Yeah, and um, she's talking about these mobile abattoirs. Yep, that will come around oh, to your property. It. Yeah, 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 and and sort of do it there. But I'm guessing that, and it's beautiful, right? Like oh, that seems like the way to go. Yeah, yeah. But um, you can't. You can't. You were saying you can't then sell that. Meat. Correct. Yeah. So yeah. for it to be a, a commercial product, you have to go to like a registered abattoir. Correct. And right. that's and and as it is increasingly the way in our food production system, they're getting bigger and more centralised, those abattoirs. Whereas We're obsessed with centralisation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In so, so many different ways. Yep. So if I was to raise pigs on the south coast now, um, even since I used to be down there or used to be raising pigs down there, we used to have an abattoir one hour away at Maruya, but now they, they don't do pork uh, anymore. So I'd have to drive my pigs to Picton 
It's oh, fucking fuck. crazy. Yeah. Because yeah, you're bringing yeah, all right. these animals yeah, into the one area. Yep. And one of them could be sick yep. or treated like shit. Yeah. And have a really bad immune. Get sick from, from cross-contamination from the stress of that travel as well. And then yeah. you bring them all together. Yep. You shove them into a pen and spread that shit around. It's a broken system. Is it, is know, it that a, we want like accountability? They need to be able to trace where it mm. came from? Is that yeah, at the heart of it? You can do that. You know, like it's, uh, yeah. I think it's like, it's the, the get big or get out mentality. Like yeah, right. Increasingly like, yeah, that, that food has become corporatized uh, and the, the kind of family owned farm is becoming a thing of the past and, you know, and like expense and loans and everything's getting bigger. So like the, they get bigger and bigger and bigger and then they fold and then the next biggest farm buys them and eventually like it becomes too big for a family to own. So it go, becomes corporatized and they've got that interest. They're looking at food production purely mm. as like a, a logistical chain experience yeah so they don't want to have to be like bringing carcasses in from like 20 regional abattoirs they just want to bring the trucks to the big plant yeah and then they use that Put as their a packet yeah primary distribution point everyone pays yeah but it's about in terms of like eating quality uh you cannot compare to on farm you like it's it's chalk and cheese it's like you know the difference between like a, a hydroponic tomato grown in queensland Bought in July down here in the middle of winter, and like one and like an heirloom variety off your vine in your backyard, still warm from the sun in the middle of January. Yeah, you know they're they're not even the same thing. You know, it's like one. You know, that's the the other one doesn't deserve to be called a tomato. And I feel like you know we we have forgotten what amazing real food tastes like. Like, and this is it's a, a lot real, of people don't like it. Like, it's yeah. often too flavoursome for yeah, folks. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah. Well, we're so, we're so accustomed to this like low baseline of flavour, and flavour is nutrition, really. Like, intense flavour is usually a hallmark of high nutrition. Uh, and I mean, that's that's just the way it is. Not to like shit on people for their like food choices, but if you like only can buy your fruit and veg and your meat from a major supermarket, then like you are you're you're at like a, a consistent level, but it's very low. You know, like in terms of like ultimate quality, like, yeah, you're going li- to live on it and you survive on it and your kids will grow on it and all that. But if you compare it to like homegrown, high quality or like or small diversified farm raised stuff, like there's just, there's no comparison. No. And it's, it's interesting, even when you speak to like a dietitian or nutritionist, um, they got, they'll go over the same things, protein, content, fat, vitamins, minerals, all these kind of things. Yes. And then they'll tell you to eat this particular veggie and this meat. Yep. But within those categories, there's such a huge range of like shit. Yeah. All the way to like gold and everything in between. Yep. So, yeah, it's well, interesting. I mean, uh, starting to cook, for example, if you wanted to learn just how to cook meals from scratch for yourself, like if you were to only use, you know, to make like a pasta sauce and it says, like, get a kilo of tomatoes and you yep. get a kilo of those like cricket ball tomatoes from the supermarket. I wonder why it tastes like shit. And you're like, is it me? Can I just not cook? Mm. I'm, a, I'm a bad cook. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to go back to eating like manufactured hyperpalatable food because my brain, when I eat it, it fires. It's like, man, this is great. It's got fat, it's got sugar, it's got all this stuff that I want. Mm. I'm hardwired to want, so I'm, like, I'm going to keep eating this because I, I tried cooking fresh healthy food and it tasted like crap yeah but if you were to like take those same tomatoes from your backyard and run them through a passata mill and roast them a little bit uh and it wouldn't matter if you used store-bought pasta for that and just a little bit of basil a little bit of salt and pepper and you'd eat that and you'd be like whoa whoa man my mind is blown yeah. and that was um for me that was like the real beautiful thing about like learning my 
culinary trade through French cookery uh, because, you know, like so many cuisines, its foundation was on agrarianism. Like it was a cuisine developed from small farms, growing things and, and making the most out of that regional abundance. Uh, and there's a real kind of approach in French cookery that I love that's like simplicity is key, you know. It's like that if you can do the simple stuff really well, like with high quality ingredients, then then that's that's mastery. You know, like anyone can throw a thousand ingredients together and make some sort of whiz-bang complicated thing. But if you can take three ingredients and turn it into something like that blows people's mind, that's that's where the real the real mm. skills at. Italian cuisine is similar to that. E- exactly, well, yeah. They're just on the different side of the Alps. Ex- exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like what, what you've got at hand, high quality ingredients, fresh as possible, as little as possible. And what it too. tastes like. Yeah. Rather than what it looks like, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When we've gone down that market and you'll see like little fruit flies hanging around the tomatoes and holes in them and funny shapes. And they're the ones all the mummers are going for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know? they know. Because <laughs> the bugs know. Yeah. You know, they're hanging around yeah. it because they're like, whoa, this is ripe and this yeah. is not coated in chemicals. And this is like, uh, the, you know, the insects can smell the carbohydrates, yeah. the sugars in there. They're like, oh, yes, please. Uh, but we look and go, oh, yuck. Oh, I'm going to get it in that plastic wrapped cricket ball over there instead. <laughs> and cook it next week. Bread. Yeah, cook it next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would probably just turn to mush in the bottom of the fridge, you know. That's, um, but yeah, so having like that access to, to amazing food and i mean like I, I fear that there's like a level of elitism in that you know that it's like if you're you know if you're living out in like a food desert like suburbs out west southwest like any outskirts of the city and you've only got your woolies choice i'm like oh you should be buying like organic produce it's amazing and they go yeah i don't live in bondi mate yeah you know <laughs> like i can't go down to my whole food shop and just like pick that stuff up from my farmer's market mate because that doesn't exist here we've yeah. got woolies and my kids stuff you know we eat hungry jacks uh, but that's where like taking that control or having you're trying to have some sort of sovereignty over your own food production whereas like you know it's maybe buying like really expensive you know organic produce from an inner city kind of trendy whole foods joint yeah that's expensive but like buying a packet of heirloom seeds from the diggers club for three bucks fifty for a thousand seeds that's not expensive no you know yeah. what i mean that's cheap as chips like, and they even sell the the family seed pack yeah you seen that one yeah well you don't even have it's to like, think about like what's I, that one i don't know i think you could produce like 500 kilos of yeah. vegetables based on a 10 square meter, <laughs> yeah. 10 meter Holy square shit. space it's a, yeah yeah and it's, it's an assortment of different seeds yep. in yeah. the pack correct Great that's seeds. cool yeah, awesome yeah. variety yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're and onto it. it and I mean the shit that you, that, that you learn and your kids learn in that process goes way beyond just the food that it produces doesn't it without a doubt you know it's uh, so my my kids like I'm not like some you know Instagram nutritionist influencer where I'm like look at my kids just knocking back another bowl of steamed broccoli it's amazing <laughs> like my youngest one he's like was it sausages and yeah, something with yeah, tomato sauce yeah exactly you saw, today, you know, yeah. like my, my, well, like, my kid my three year old he's like I'm like boy what do you want for dinner oh no he's like what are we having for dinner I'm like tell him he's like yuck he's like I like fish and chips and calamari and pizza and barbecue sauce. <laughs> Cause that's the, you know, the, the treat that we get like once yeah. every week or so. Uh, so like I'm a, a realist, like I'm not there going, your kids should be eating steamed quinoa too people, you know? <laughs> um, but when you put them in the garden uh, and you're just like, you can eat that, you can eat that, pick that off. You can eat that. Like kids are like locusts in that case. They're like, they get that vision, like that food vision. They're like, Oh, I can eat this one and this. And like, it's living food. Like where we, we don't, 
other than, you know, if you're including fermented foods in your diet, like we don't really eat living foods anymore. Like the, as soon as a, something is picked from the ground or from the tree or picked from the bush, like it, it, is, it starts to die. Yeah, and there's a, there's a process of like enzymatic reduction that happens you know, pretty quickly. Uh, but when you're eating it fresh off the plant, like it's, it's a living thing. You know, and we, we, that nourishes us in an incredible way. And so, yeah, if you can't get your kids to eat veggies, grow veggies. Grow them. Grow yeah. them. And also the, the time and effort they put into growing it. Yeah. Watching it grow. And then it's like, okay, you, you're actually, you want to eat it. Yeah. Like, as, as a kid, you're yeah. like, okay, well, I fucking grew that. Yeah, I've been watching I've been that cat for two months. I'm yeah. going to be the one that eats it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what else? That's you know, a, I remember TMI taking me through a tour of, your old garden at, at uh, oh, yeah. Hereford Street, and she yeah. was, you know, she was showing me this teased little girl. She showed me, you know, that's that's you know the the fucking blueberries. That's the strawberries. Look, look, there's a strawberry there. See the strawberry? Look, that's the lettuce. Like yeah. she was super proud of it. <laughs> it's yeah. ownership of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and exactly in pride and like, and we we've got chooks in the backyard, and like my five year old's like a chook whisperer. I don't have to do anything. Like I, I built the coop and got bought the chickens in, and that was that was the last of the effort that I've like had to put into it. Like he gets up. And I don't have to be like, make sure you go feed the chooks, mate. You know, don't forget them. He's like, he's out of bed, shoes on. He's out the back. He's out there for half an hour. He's like <laughs> in the coop with them. Mate. He's like carrying one around. He's like, we got an egg and I fed him as well. And, I'm like, and that's his morning before school. I'm like, right. how, how good's that? Like, and he, he has ownership of it as well, you know, and just like, you know, like you just said, when people come over, he's like, talks to him about the chooks. He's like, this one's this one. This one's not laying yet. And this one's that breed. And it'll lay blue eggs. And that'll lay brown <laughs> eggs. Like they, they go mad for it. So it's kids. I think, you know, there's an instinct in there. Like every animal in the world has an instinct around the food that it eats. You know, it kind of is born into the world with, you know, an intrinsic knowledge of, of what to eat. And it's exposed through family as well. But so kids like they gravitate towards real food. You know, if it's there and they're exposed to it, like I, I find that you, you don't, it doesn't take much coercion. Like we did a rooster kill on a friend's farm the other day. They've got a big free range chicken operation. And so they, they, they also raise a lot of roosters as part of that because they raise their own stock. And we had to kill 60 roosters. It's a once a year thing. What and happens? Like, what do you do with the... Uh, we boil them up yep. for like stock. We just yeah, make right. and it's, it's epic stock, you know. It's like the kind of it's like this cream, but in stock version, you know. It's <laughs> like the gelatin set on it's just through the roof. Oh, like uh, and then we like pick all the meat and make salads and stuff, and keep all the offal and make pates and things like that. Um, but like my five year old was in there, like, and he had his own chickens at home at this stage, so he was like, he's a chicken lover, you know. And he's like, he's like, so, like, we kill them. And he's like, and we're like, yeah, mate, we like they they they're gone. And he's like. Are we going to kill our chickens at home? I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not going to kill those ones. But these ones, you know, we're going to kill them. We're going to eat them. He's like, okay. And got involved in the process. Like he's plucking. He's like, he didn't cut one. You know, he didn't kill one with his own hand. But he, uh, but he like put him in the cone and like, you know, plucked him. And it was fascinating. But it was somber for him. You know, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a Tarantino thing. Like, yeah, let's rip <laughs> in here, Dad. How cool is this? All the blood and guts. He was like, you could see that it was like a real reflective somber thing for him but then he kind of like went you know okay i have to do this or i want to do this now as a part of you know I'm like mate you're five like i wasn't thinking about that shit when i was five it's all <laughs> about finger painting you know it's like <laughs> good on you good on you kid you deep little fella i yeah. um we, we just came back from a trip up to to mullumbimby and uh on the way we stopped at the the shannon oh. uh at um jeff lorden's Permaculture oh, research awesome. facility, yeah, yeah. which was the famous PRI. Mate, that guy, 
I've had is a man he, crush is, on him. Is for he one of the godfathers? He is. Yeah, he's um yeah. he's like second gen. He's like the the big player in second gen permaculture. It was yeah, David like Holgram and Bill Mollison were the founders like of the concept. Proto Joe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, and Jeff, like Jeff's focus went to like major landscape, you know, manipulation. Yeah. For it, like he like. Did you ever see that Docker greening the desert where he got like? Yeah, he went to Jordan and he went to Jordan. Yeah. He's actually tra- transformed a bunch of um, desert landscapes into like food paradise. Jesus. with you know water like tables and stuff like that's pretty amazing yeah like um, large scale worth stuff. the watch yeah he's amazing impressive. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, how was that it was like I we arrived and um missed the camping turn off because you can camp on his land and um you can you can uh, camp there you can do workshops there or you can um just volunteer to do work we're on a holiday me and my wife and the kids I had secretly planned to volunteer to do some work, but I didn't Ooh. tell my wife. I don't know, <laughs> you sneaky devil. It, so I was like, we'll just go camping here. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, okay, cool. And then, then you, can, you can also help on the farm, it says here, babe. <laughs> she, was, she was actually pretty pissed off. I didn't think she'd be as angry as she <laughs> no was. No shit. Was <laughs> she, she's, she's pretty pregnant right now. But, right? Yeah, she's pregnant right now. So she just wanted to lie around and chill. And um, when we got there, it was like a full, it's like a working farm. And she's like, when she got out of the tent, she was like, I feel like I need to be doing something right now. And then she looked at me and she goes, you knew this place. But anyway, we, uh, we missed a turn off and we ended up outside this, um, this clay. Uh, sorry. It was a, um, what do you call the, the it's a, the hay bale. It was a hay bale house. Straw bale. Straw bale yeah, house. Yeah. Big thick walls and then coat mud all over them. And uh, out sitting in the, in the front of this huge uh, dam, which is like the size of a little, like a like a, it looked like a little lake, uh, which I found out later that Jeff dug out and created this huge, f- uh, like a like a food forest around it. That you could just walk through and just eat mm. from every tree, and the only trees that you didn't eat from were pushing uh, nitrogen back into yep. the soil to yep. help these other trees next to it grow into into fruit bearing trees. And uh, anyway, we get there. And um, I'm sitting outside this house going, oh, man, I think we've taken, like, the wrong turn off. I don't know where we are. It was dark. And then I see these gumboots and pyjamas. And then I hear this, are you okay there? And I was like, oh, my God, it's fucking Jeff. It's Jeff. <laughs> I'm my wife and go, it's fucking Jeff Horton. <laughs> like, uh, uh, hi, like, Mr. Lorden. Uh. <laughs> I jump out. I'm like, oh, hi, hi Jeff. Hi. Oh, mate, big fan, big fan. I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm a little bit starstruck right now. And I'm like, chat away. And he's like kind of looking at me and he's scratching his head poor guy it was like nine o'clock and he would have been in bed by seven yeah so yeah farm classic life. farmer yeah, yeah yeah and um <laughs> and then he's like oh look uh, i'll get you to turn around i'll show you where the campsite is just follow me and um as i jump in the car i see like a set of olympic rings and oh. a little workout area. Oh. And I'm like, fuck Sky Trains. <laughs> I come in. I got a connection already. And I turn around and he starts sprinting up the hill. He's 65, like full sprint, gumboots, pajamas, beard, sprinting up the hill. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm following Jeff Lord and he's sprinting up a hill in his pajamas. And my wife looks at me and goes, Can you just fucking call it? Yeah. <laughs> you need to calm down. He's going to be here tomorrow. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm like, because my wife's a professional, da- a professional dancer, used to be. Right. And I said, I want you to imagine that as Madonna. Yeah. In her pajamas, and you're outside her house, and she's sprinting you 
to stay somewhere like on her property. And yeah. she was like, all right, okay, I get it. <laughs> you got <laughs> me, babe. Yeah, it was fucking, it was, it was like a masterclass in cooking because no one's there. Yes. It's the whole COVID thing. Usually the place has heaps of students coming through it. Lots of people, um, you know, digging holes and, and laying, you know, swales and all the rest of it. But because no one had been there for ages, it was just me, my wife, two other couples and him. Oh. And we had him for like, it was like about four days. Kind right. of four, four full days of just working in the garden. And the way he worked soil, the way he layered like his poo and his straw, he'd make like these huge cakes out of like different ingredients and then they'd break down and they'd go onto the soil and then the soil would uh, we'd, we'd put a top layer on that. But when he was even working his seedlings, he had like a special hand kind of <laughs> kind of souffle thing Ooh. going on and then he would layer inside that like a nest uh, worm castings and a little bit of something else and then another drizzle and then the seed, the way the seed would be placed, it was a special way of placing the seed at the top <laughs> and then he'd do like this little shush over the top and I was like, oh my gosh. There's so much to it. That you know? is spectacular. And he's a master. <laughs> yeah. And you can imagine like the quality of food that, that you know, that he would be eating. It uh, was like walking through the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I kid you not, you could walk down these swales and you would just be like shopping yeah. and you'd get way more than you need. Because everything looks fantastic. It's there the first day. Because, so. Yeah, fresh food's not just fresh food, it you know. And so uh, there's so much about like the, the, the practice and the soil quality. Like I think yeah. like one of the things that I love from that regenerative ag space, and it's one of the big sayings that like if you're a terrestrial based farmer, no matter what you're growing, the first thing you're a soil farmer first and foremost. Yeah. Soil farmer. Soil yeah. Yeah. Like if you if you're raising beef, if you're growing wheat, if you're doing any of that, first and foremost, you are a soil farmer. And if you don't have that microbial life, that carbon content content that mineral base that organic con matter then then you grow on nothing and yeah. you're probably using the soil as a substrate for chemical agriculture where the soil is just like this dead inert thing that that just holds the root system and you just pour chemicals on top of it mm. to grow stuff but, but something that really got me down south and like in the two tilba communities central tilba and tilba tilba they've got like the old kind of you know settlers cemetery down on one of the beaches and i was like it's a good fishing spot you can get a wave there every now and then when the banks are right and kind of went in and had like a walk through this little cemetery i'm like walking around i'm like looking around i'm like these people are dying in the early 1900s and they were all in their 90s like and so this was this place was totally unsupported by road. Like it was, a, you had to drive up to the Monero and like horse up to you know to Goulburn to get to Sydney. But pretty much supported only by the sea and the port of Bermagui. And like they were, they were living into their nineties. And no like fancy hospitals. No fancy hospitals. No nothing. Like just diet and movement. Really, like, and, and so, but they were on this amazing volcanic soil. The mountain's full of spring water, so they're drinking this kind of mineral-rich spring water as their primary water source. They're eating food that's grown out of, like, this deep, rich volcanic soil, and as a result, they're living to a bloody long age. Yeah. Like, in an age where, like, medical intervention was like, oh, I don't know, why don't you try putting a hot nail in his head? That might fix him. Oh, well, he's <laughs> dead. Okay, and on to the, into the morgue. Uh, so I was like, wow, that, and that really kind of struck me about that, that power of, of food for, for longevity, you know, where like if you, if you can kind of get your diet on point and you can strip the chemicals away and you can make sure you're eating high quality nutrient dense food and you're kind of living like a natural, active, you know, outdoor human lifestyle. Cause like these guys weren't like, and guys weren't retiring at 65 and playing golf. 
you know, they were like okay. farming okay. till they were 95, yeah. you know, they Sprint were growing their own food. Yeah, exactly. Sprinting up hills and like that kind of diet, uh, that nutrient dense diet gives you that vitality to be able to do it. Like, you know, we all know 65 year old men and women that like at 65, they're shells, you know, they're done. Mm. Like it's like long descent into yeah, death. Yeah, it's like the most, that, that, that's a, the, the most precarious time of yeah. human's life is the first year of retirement yeah yeah so when because it's the mind sick. yeah you lose your sense of worth yes and, and you're not rec- you're not you know you're no longer contributing yeah back to the the, the you know the the, the community yep. in a way and I, I i reckon if you want to meet the most vital uh, and robust group of like octogenarians go and join your local garden club yeah because <laughs> like I, you know my kind of work i get asked to come and speak to you know like the old garden clubs every now and then and there'll be a bunch of like 80 year old mostly women occasional bloke and they just on it they're all spry and they're like moving and they've got like you know they've got good they've squat got patterns good, yeah they've got like a full you know, full squat. spread they're like engaged they're asking like interesting questions like all of them have like a great deal of physical capability. Still sharp. Still sharp. Mm. Physically sharp and mentally sharp. And it's because when they're not, you know, at these social gatherings, they're at home in the garden. They're bending down. They're planting stuff. They're lifting little 20 kilo bags of potting mix. or they're eating well. They're eating well, you know. And I was like that. So the, the two experiences of talking to garden clubs and like and seeing that cemetery for me were like two things where I'm like, I want, I want to have a long life, mm. but I want to have like a long capable life. Yeah, quality. You know? Quality, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be like, you know, spending the final 15 years of my life in palliative care, you know, just like looking out a window waiting to die. It's and something, it's, um, I was thinking about that when I was spending time with Jeff and I'm thinking like this. First name basis. Yeah. Me and Jeff go way back. Actually, my daughter came up to me the next day when he was like out in the garden. I was like walking over to him and he goes, she goes, Dad, there's your man crush. <laughs> your man crush, Dad. He's over there. And I'm like, busted. <laughs> Don't embarrass me in front Dad, of Jeff, your, honey. Your man crush. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. Is, <laughs> like, man crush. No, stop. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, I, I, I think um, we, we, we're constantly looking for new information and, yes. and ways to better ourselves. And, you know, the personal development thing is it's huge for especially – for you know, a business owner or anyone that wants to you know get get uh, get somewhere in life, and we tend to overlook the fact that there's so many of us that have already been there, mm. done it, come out the other end. Whether they were successful or not doesn't really matter. Like there's experienced individuals on this planet, and there are elders. And for millennia, we would go to them yes. for advice. Like, okay, you're in a bad place. However, you fucked up. What did you do? So I don't have to go down that path, or maybe they had a successful life, and you learn from that as well. Yeah. But we've cut that line short. Yep. We've done that, and and we've cut it from our kids as well because we chuck them in homes like our parents, uh, and we go and visit them while they slowly deteriorate and lose their sense of worth. Yes. And our kids see this empty shell of what could have been the most, you know, one of the strongest sources of knowledge for them. Yes. Uh, for their for the for the for the most you know uh, important. Periods of their their growth and development, and with that patience and time as a yeah. grandparent to be able to sit down with kids and really explain yeah. stuff yes. to them, and like, because you know, I've I've got two kids, but I'm in you know I'm in mid thirties, I've got stuff going on, yes. you know, like I I spend as much time as humanly possible with them, yeah. and I love that and cherish that time, but I still got to put a roof over our head, yeah. and that time, even with them physically, 
it's very difficult to spend with them uh, 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 like in in the present because you're you know managing you're beeping, yeah you're thinking yeah, about yeah, what yeah. you do next okay i've got a, i've got half an hour here with them and then and they're so I'll sharp to that for, oh, kids yeah. like if you're not present like if you're kind of like oh, yeah. on the phone like you know whether it be like for work purposes or just like kind of mindlessly scrolling because you just think you're mm. just all chilling playing toys they're razor sharp yeah. on that they know you're not there yeah and they call you out on it you know it's uh so that's been like a good kind of back and forth with our kids like that i've encouraged them like like if i'm looking at my phone just tell me to put it down and i will no worries mm. like if you want me like come and get like i'm here for you you know yeah so yeah one of one of the interesting things i um that both that we spoke about yesterday and that you talking about um your mate jeff um is is the old mate best mate um (laughs) jeff thanks for listening by the way (laughs) hopefully it's not your first episode um is the the connection between uh like training like movement right and you talk about um you talk about like a movement practice yes which is a concept and this is me as an outsider. I'm not. I'm not much in this world that you guys are talking about. But um, I think we end up where people get very much into their world and often don't look at other ones. So, say someone who's in the kind of permi food kind of scene, are not necessarily also in the movement scene. Yes. Right. And people that are in the movement scene are in the movement scene. Yes. Maybe they're into black coffee and grass-fed beef, but only yeah, because yeah, yeah. you know it's dictated by the cult that subculture. Yes. So it's interesting to me that the, that you that there's this that there is this crossover. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit on that? Well, I think they 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 all just jigsaw perfectly together. You know that that if you're looking at a, a traditional human existence or an ancestral, you know, pre-agricultural or even early stages of agriculture, before we became a highly industrialized society, that those things were all indistinguishable. Like your movement practice was your food growing practice. Your your cultural experience was both of those things combined. Your family time was those things combined. Your like your sense of worth and the things that you work to were your movement practice and your food growing practice. And the way that you connected to your family was the food that you cooked that you moved to grow. So it was all this one giant, you know, holistic picture that that we were that we could not separate ourselves from. And now, you know, as we've mechanized and industrialized and found all these little ways to kind of carve off those roles and outsource them you know and so we can specialize we've we've become increasingly less the the kind of capable generalist and more the specialist and now because of that specialized nature of of the work that we do in our modern society we tend to view things as niches that we do like oh i cook or, or I grow like I'm a gardener or I'm a foodie or I'm like a gym bro or like I like movement and stuff like that and you know, maybe like I, I throw my hat in the ring on one of those things and the other ones, as you kind of mentioned, are peripheral or dictated by the culture within, you know, within that group. But they they just, they segue so like, or connect so beautifully. And I think like, I love um, Katie Bowman for that. You know, it's, uh, again, so if you're listening out, she's um, a US biomechanist and she's she's super onto it. And she um, she's all about like varied movement patterns and kind of getting that full, she used this term rainbow movements and it's, like, it's the polar opposite of an isolated movement. You know, like if your body, if you do an isolated movement, your body adapts to an isolated movement. If you do a high variety of movements, your body is nourished by that, by that variety of movement and it adapts to being able to move in a variety of planes. But she is like 100% into permaculture as well and food growing because she sees that within that, you know, you're, you're like, you're doing all these fundamental human movement patterns. You know, you're deadlifting things off the ground, you're carrying loads, you're like, you're squatting, you're lunging, you're reaching overhead, you're pulling yourself up to look over things. There's, there's so much movement and variety within that, that all of a sudden you don't have to like carve off these individual 
periods of your day or your life to focus on my food growing and then I've got my movement practice and then I spend the time in the kitchen that you can stack them to be to be one thing that you don't have to isolate them so whenever I'm in the garden like I really try to super concentrate on form you know like if I'm picking all if I'm, if I'm out cutting wood you know like I'm we live on you know in a cold relatively cold environment down there I probably cut two tons of firewood a year that I have to move like I go out I cut it in the bush I load it into a trailer in blocks I stack it at my house I bring it in the you know inside to burn and every time I do that like I make sure I keep like a nice neutral spine and like I'm like I'm bending down to the ground like and I consider that you know as a job that I need to do but also as a way to kind of get my quality movement practice in as well so yeah, I, like I think it's we don't need to isolate these things, and that and that that those three concepts of like food, uh, growing it, cooking it, and and movement, uh, and like the physical nourishment of the human body, those three things are, are really one process, or can be morphed into one process, and and when you do all three together, all three benefit. It's like a you know like a three legged table. Like you can yeah you can get the IKEA flat pack and you got three legs. Sure you got a leg in each hand, but when you put them all together, it's capable of bearing like a much stronger weight. I just made that metaphor up. I like that. I don't know if that didn't land <laughs> right. right but I'm like yeah. I'm just freestyling here. I had that second cup of coffee there, so I don't know if it's the cream or the caffeine. But uh, <laughs> so yeah, the, you know, and you get that that benefit like where where when you're getting you're eating your own nutrient dense food that you've grown, all of a sudden your recovery time's better. You're like you you tend are stronger your muscle growth is more high quality and you don't need to supplement you know you can you can get it all from this like relatively holistic but close circle of, of activities mm. yeah i have an answer to that question too so i saw uh, when i first met jeff he um introduced me to his wife and she's 25 years younger than him than him oh. Highly Slide, educated, small, very pretty. <laughs> and I just thought, I want to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> what a boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is there this vitality? Hey, to D. You? <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, though. Great. But um, I mean, you were surprised to see he had a pair of rings and what do you say, rings and a barbell? Yeah, rings, barbell, surfs. Like um, you know, yep. I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's not that uncommon for someone to have a pair of rings, but out on a rural property, it's pretty cool. Yeah, so it's well, progressive. Yes, and he's uh, doing online training. He's doing a bit of online stuff for some, he likes trying lots of different styles of training. <laughs> like, yeah. he, he's one of, he's like a, he's like a, a bit of a, like online training slot. Right. Yes. To do a bit of this, bit of that, bit of that. And he's always <clears> trying <throat> new, new ways. And he, he doesn't really feel the necessity to stick to one style of training and get really good at it. He just wants to move. Yep. Uh, he likes to surf, so whatever keeps him in the water yep. and feeling strong in the water, then he'll do. And he I, loves all the body weight stuff though. So And I can imagine like good. running that farm like that, he's not exactly like he's in a movement deficit. No. Like no, I don't know what his like step counter would be up, but it'd probably be more like twenty thousand every day than yeah, like, well, oh, it'd be good if you get ten, <laughs> Jeff. It's like I hit forty on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. I we like got a knock on the tent. I think it was about six five thirty. Yeah, he's like, oh, because he said, oh, you kids want to feed the animals tomorrow. And I was like, yeah, yeah, at, at nine. On the tent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, dark yeah. outside. <sighs> Get up, kids! Get out of here. My kids are like slowly slip, <laughs> sleeping deeper into the sleeping bag, and I'm like, quick, get up, come on, go, go feed the animals with your man crush, dad. <laughs> yeah, time, time. <laughs> we'll do it at lunch. <laughs> yeah, so we we actually did a little. We did fed the fed the horses, fed the fed the, for the, the, the hens and stuff. And then um, there was some, I don't know, it was like a rodent of some kind that 
was spreading a tick. Oh. And uh, had to be flushed out of the drain pipe. And he looked at me and he goes, is your son okay with like a, a bit of blood? And I was like, I asked my son and I'm like, oh, I hope, hope he says no because I'm terrible at watching <laughs> things get killed. And he's like, yeah. Uh, oh, damn. <laughs> push him out. They, they get the, the dog on one side of his pipe and he's pushing out the whatever it was in with a, with a, with a stick to get this rodent out of the pipe and it finally bolts out of the pipe and I'm like, go, 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 <laughs> you good okay, rat. You're free and this dog just like, the dog's name's Possum, grabs this thing and just goes, and just chucks it on the ground and this this little this little marsupial-y looking rodent thing just kind of lies on its back and it's just going, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm totally scarred. And I look down at my, my son, I'm thinking, oh, is, yeah, thinking that he's going to be like freaking out. He's just kind of like, just that inquisitive kind of, he's just yeah. looking and I'm like, you okay with this? And he's like, yeah. You know. I think kids <laughs> are cooler with death than adults. I yeah. Like they're like, to yeah, them, like yeah, we're yeah. kind of socially conditioned to be like, oh, it's scary. It's this yes. big thing. Like, whereas kids don't have that. It's like more of a, as you said, fascination mm. type thing. They're like, yeah. oh, wow. So it's like, it's not asleep. Like it just, it's dead. Like it's yeah. never going to be alive again. And they, Cause like, you know, like I said, I took my kid to the, my kids to the roost mm. kill and they, they went like, oh no, that's too heavy. They're like, okay. Yeah. We, we, okay. We, I think I understand this. So yeah. And I that kind it. of mirror as well. I mean, if everyone was freaking out. Yeah. Yeah. Freak yeah. Out oh, well, totally, you know? totally. Totally. But yeah, it was a bit of a eye opener for me. I was like, oh damn, we've got to kill stuff. Yeah. I'm not good at killing. I don't think I'd be good at killing things. Yeah. I well, mean, my, my kind of like off the wall idea is that like, if you want to eat meat, there should be like a licensing process yeah, you gotta uh, and you should like, like have to, you know, you not, not necessarily like pull the trigger, but like witness it. Yeah. And yeah. go like, well, cause you know, you're outsourcing that somewhere, mm. someone somewhere is like, is pulling the trigger on the meat that you eat, mm. you know? And mm. like that poor dude does it or like, a woman does it like, eight hours a day every day mm, mm. you know that's like that's a grim job uh and not like yeah. i hate to do that for a oh job. man oh no no, no. You're a tough gig. Bolting yeah. in the head. and then we yeah. and then we like and then we almost kind of criticize that type of person yeah like you drive through a country town you know meet a weird dude oh, i bet he works at the abattoir yeah. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know creep <laughs> yeah, let's, let's get a hot dog yeah <laughs> yeah and because most people i found like are in that kind of boat like they're happy to eat meat but like like oh i don't know you know like you're not alone in that tea for sure mm, because mm. i mean like doing it on television with river coach like when it came out on dvd i saw an animal uh, classification on there that i'd never seen before and it was mild animal slaughter themes mm. <laughs> wow. strong language uh, sexual you know sex scenes and mild animal slaughter themes did you get um, any like trolling after the back of that? Uh, a little bit, but actually, but, but not not <laughs> too much. Yeah, you know, like I think the biggest thing I got trolled on for that was um was double dipping uh like in tasting a dish that I then served <laughs> to the CWA ladies. They came over and like made this like pumpkin risotto and like tasted once needs more salt, bit of salt, and then ate again. And it was like. The, the phone line lit up. That is They're like, you, how could you? You double dipped and then you <laughs> fed it to the CWA, you that. savage. <laughs> um, but like when it came to the animal killing, uh, actually surprisingly, I was like, here we go. Yeah. Like I'm getting the target on the back for this mm. one. Um, you know, because the vegan community is very- People throwing like, has, buckets of blood on you yeah, on the has like has elements of it that are very outspoken, which is which is fine. Uh, and I thought well, I'm probably going to make myself a bit of a target for this, but I was actually really surprised that I had a lot of vegans like, one, identify themselves as vegans to me through social media and then go, thank you for putting this on TV. 
thank you for putting this on like national, uh, you know, primetime television because like it's make it's making people uncomfortable, mm. and like that's what we're talking about. Like this is what's happening to animals to eat your meat. Like and so they kind of felt like it was a tool in their kit to go like, well, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, then what are you eating meat for? You know, mm. like you should be coming over to to the vegan side. And I, but the other the, the flip side of that was also that I get I got lots of like families like parents of young kids kind of get in touch and go, thanks for showing that because like that's how we've had a conversation around meat consumption with our children because it's you know it's a lifestyle program it's not like it's not a Tarantino film like it's all kind of artfully done like you see it happen on camera but not like graphically uh, and um, and they're like well you know we're not going to go out to the the mega abattoir at Picton and rock up at the, you know, the signing desk and go, I uh, just want to have a conversation with my kids around meat eating. Can we, can we go to the kill floor, please? I think I want to, I want to show them how it's done. Uh, but, you know, apparently like lots of families watched it together and had the conversation around, around the ethics of meeting with their children after watching me kill livestock on national television. That's mm. cool. Which was, yeah, that was Super great. Cool. Yeah, that, that, I was really chuffed with that, you know, to be able to foster that conversation with people uh, and, and, and help families have a discussion around, like, their own ethics. And, you know, some people became – some kids – I've heard, like, kids becoming vegetarian from that, you know, which is totally cool as well. Like, they, they, they had the conversation, they weighed up the ethics themselves, and they went, you know what, like, if that's where chicken comes from, like, I, I don't want to eat chicken anymore. And I was like, well, good on you, kid. That's great. Yeah. Like, that's good on you for having that conversation and, and then, you know, using that information to, to, to make a decision. I did a, um, I did a beginner's bow hunting retreat Ooh. some years ago, which was like a, yeah, just like an intro thing with a couple of guys. They, it's, it was sort of, um, what did we do? We did the first, it's a weekend, and we did, spent the first evening uh, kind of getting a lesson on different parts of bow hunting, the ethics of it, yes, the equipment, um, the etiquette, yeah, it was really good. Yeah, and, and, and with the ethics, like if you don't have a clean shot, don't take it. That exactly. Kind of thing. Like yeah, all, yeah, yeah, all yeah. of that stuff. Like you know, you're a steward of the land, and it's you know, and like you were saying before, it's it, it, to a to a vegan or a vegetarian hearing it, it sounds a bit kind of, um, it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. But it's about having respect for the animals and understanding that you are going to eat it, and you're only there to take what you need. Yes. And that yeah, you you, you know, you want to kill the weakest one. Yeah. If, if there's a pack, you're going to choose yep. the one that's got the least chance of reproducing them. Absolutely. All those things, and then you go out and and you know and and you don't do anything. You just help store. You just help kind of sight it, and then they will kill it, and then you get to learn to butcher it and stuff. And it was really cool. They killed a deer. Great. And it was mad. It was yeah, the maddest yeah. thing. But uh, so many people that I tell about it are like, oh, that's fucked. Like, yeah, you did that like voluntarily yeah, on your like, weekend? Yeah, creep. <laughs> <laughs> Worse than that guy in the abattoir, you know? Yeah. And you're like, you know, and still, and people, you know, who know better. And you're like, dude, you fucking eat meat. Like, yeah. like how is your instinct that that is fucked? Because yeah, yeah. yeah someone has to kill it. And wild, wild meat is the, the pinnacle of like the ethics of meat eating. Like, you know, some people would say that no meat eating is ethical whatsoever, but like an animal that has had no interaction with humanity whatsoever and is just like kind of walking around the bush uh, and eating some grass and then all of a sudden is killed instantly by a clean shot. Like it's, that's, that's as good as it gets, you know, like they've had no stress put onto them by contact with humanity. They've lived their whole life. There's been a degree of natural selection because as you said, you know, you're like, you're not going for the alpha males or pregnant females. You're like, you're, you're kind of thinning the gene pool of weaker stock. Uh, and so the herd benefits, you get a, uh, you know, uh, 
nourishment and sustenance from wild meat and um and you get to spend that time with reverence in nature because it because you have to be especially bow hunting like you've got to be so mindful it's not like you you know sit 300 meters away with a high-powered rifle and go put it in the scope pull the trigger like you've got to get really close and to be able to have that body control and that environmental awareness of not like of like wind and direction and topography and your own body positioning and what the animal's doing like it's you're connecting to nature and like because we kind of you know as people when we connect to nature these days like this is what it was like for us when we were living in melbourne for the last couple of years before we moved back to the south coast we're like okay we want to go out we want to get some some time in nature we're sick of the built environment we'd go out to a national park park in the car park get out of the car walk on a, you know like i had little kids so you like you do a little half hour circuit loop somewhere you're just walking on the track you know like you're walking on like a, a flat you know gravel track and you're kind of like walking almost through this like human tunnel through nature like you're not connecting with it in any way you're looking at it yeah it's cool it's nice you're breathing the fresh air that's great but that's like that's the the the, the depth of your connection to it you're a tourist there you know it's uh yeah so but to be able to do that and like to have that hyper awareness in that natural environment and like and of all those layers of, of all the the different bits that go into making a successful hunt uh like you're, you're deeply connecting to that i mean there's there's layers way beyond that if you go back to traditional societies you know where like you you are you're literally living in the same environment as that animal like you share the home with that animal but compared to our our kind of domesticated city lifestyles that's like a hunting experience is one of the deepest ways that we can connect with nature there is yeah i loved it i i coming back from a, i sort of uh formed that opinion that everyone like you said everyone who eats meat should benefit from such an experience yeah and obviously it's not an easy easy thing for people to do but it would be awesome if you could somehow get you know send your kids yeah. they get a weekend kind of camp and they get to sort of experience that Yep. You know, or something along those lines. Well, if there's any JB podcast listeners out there, uh, well, we'll bring you down to the, the Cooler Galight Rooster Kill next year if you want to connect with that. Like, Dude, if, yes, that would be cool. Serious. Like, I mean, if there's any, you know, if there's any kind of tribe members out there that want to, you know, that have kids or they, they, they themselves want to do it, maybe not like in a hunt context, but more in an agricultural context, like let the boys know, they'll let me know. Come down to the South Coast and we'll, um, we'll walk you through it. I'll come next year. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I'll bring do. the fam. Sounds yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get awesome. on down. Let's, let's invite Jeff as well. <laughs> yeah, Why not? Yeah. 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 Bring, bring the rings, mate. Bring uh, the rings, Jeff. Bring the rings. <laughs> he did a, he did a, they had 110 ducks ah. that they did a big cull of. Yep. So his freezer was full of ducks. Oh, it's so good. Mm. Duck fat. Well, probably yeah. they have. Big chubby ducks. Yeah. Oh, they oh, look man. delicious. Like, like the, the, the best a hot chip can get is a hot chip that's been deep fried in duck fat. <laughs> and they're like, that's to the point, you that know. That would have been at the French restaurant that you Totally. Yeah, yeah, we had like oh. one special little fryer, you know, just for doing the potatoes in duck fat, you know. And, it's, um, and you know, you, people are like, oh, wow, like duck fat's so rich, but it's like, you know, saturated animal-based fats, high quality, you know, like anything in moderation are actually really good for us. Hydrogenated vegetables, which are most fries done in, are really shit for us. Mm. So like you, you can eat deep fried potatoes in duck fat on occasion and actually have it be quite nourishing for you, you know, it's uh, as long as that's not your three meals a day. But if you're like smashing like takeaway food from the local fish and chip shop with oxidized oil and hydrogenated vegetable oil, like that's, that's toxin for your body. You know? Locking you up. Yeah. And it's inflaming yourself. It's like there's neurotoxic chemicals to like um, properties to it. So yeah, like high quality animal fats, like they've kind of been demonized, but that's why I like to bring up, you know, the cream like this for you guys. Like it's, it's so thick, it's, you know, I used to turn it into butter and like to make 
cream into butter, you kind of just whisk it or mix it until it's an emulsion, an emulsion that splits. Like that, you like kind of look at it sideways and it turns to butter. Like it's that's ninety nine percent fat. Yeah, in my coffee, it looked like butter. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. You like can it's whisk so that. Close. Or you, you can beat it, and right. then like after two seconds, it splits. Right. So it like, and that's why you know, and it splits into what uh, milk solids or, yep. or whey, yeah, uh, and and fat okay. or ghee. You know, yep. it's um, uh, yeah, like just pure dairy fat. But that's you know that's as good as it gets. And then couple that with some some of the oysters. Oof. I remember uh, hearing like at the beginning of the kind of COVID lockdown, seeing this article by um. Dan Barber, who's like a very prominent chef and, and opinionist in the US, uh, and he, he kind of went into the archives of the New York Times and found that, you know, like because toilet paper stockpiling was a thing for this pandemic, which is, you know, it's, it's happening again during the it's second wave. It's happening again. I went into like to the to my local supermarket and just like gave the big forward slap. I'm like, not again. Come on. <laughs> like, what is wrong with people? <laughs> oh. But in the, the Spanish flu pandemic in the early 1900s, uh, the thing that was stockpiled was oysters because of, <laughs> because of their contribution, because of the, like the high zinc and trace mineral content to people's immune systems. Holy shit. So like it was so bad that people were like, like cleaning out oyster leases, stealing them, you know, like going out in like little canoes and like cleaning them out. So they had to build like these brick watchtowers <laughs> on oyster leases. So, so, wow. And so, yeah, that was the, that was the red hot item in the early 1900s, oysters for, um, for your immunity to survive the, the Spanish flu, which has been one of these kind of crazy things that like has not been addressed. I feel like in this pandemic, it's like, it's reactionary. Like it's mm. our, our, which I totally understand at a societal scale, like we need to, you know, we need to take certain measures. I'm not like one of these like crazy conspiracy theorists. Like coronavirus isn't even a real thing. It's just like a control mechanism. <laughs> That's the soundbite that I'm going to use. For yeah, the please do. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Paul West, prominent conspiracy theorist, <laughs> joins us on the Jungle Brothers. Yeah. Uh, Protege of Pete Evans. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Pete and Paul. We're bringing our non-expert Mary in on this conversation. Um, uh, and so <laughs> But, uh, but not looking at that, like, why don't, like, why aren't we educating people to have robust health? Fuck. You know, like, why, why isn't this focus going? Because we're, like, so, I mean, we're so privileged, aren't we? That yeah, it's yeah. like, and it, it's ridiculous that we're not. Yeah. But then it's also like, fuck, we, we don't realize how easy we've got it that yeah. we, we don't even have to talk about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and that people can still maintain a shit diet and a lack of training and whatever. Yeah. And still survive this thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, that, well, yeah, it's true, you know, it's uh, that we've, you know, that we can kind of just, just make by, you know, make do, like, surviving but not thriving. Yeah. And we're propped up by, you know, modern medicine and, and, and like, the comforts of our society. But um, I don't know, my, my focus has really shifted onto, like, thriving. Yeah, you need that you exposure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, when, like, for our kids, we just got them out in the garden every day, like, get dirty kids, like cover your hands and soil and dirt and roll around in it. Like we're so paranoid of exposure to pathogens and germs, but really like we're, we're covered in them, you know, and that's made a good thing. Yeah, we're made of them. Yeah, exactly. There's like... Jiu-jitsu, yeah. man. It's the exchange. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah some very, some, very, some great social distancing yeah. going on on the mats. <laughs> man, as you got a question? Uh, no, after you. I wanted to ask um, about your book. Oh. Um Edible Garden Cookbook. That's the one. Um, is there like, uh, you know, like what a fucking awesome topic. I'm guessing you talk about how people can produce food yeah. and then how they can turn that into quality food for the family. Correct. 
is there like a couple of sort of key concepts there that, yeah. that are real, that your strong takeaways on it? Yep. Uh, so I, like I, I wrote that book in response to people watching River Cottage, which was set on a 20 acre farm in rural Australia going, man, Paul, we love the show. It's so good. But like we live in suburbia, we live in an apartment, you know, like it's a dream of ours, but like one day I was like, you know what? Like 90% of Australia live in the urban environment. Like we've got this kind of like, you know, sense that we're a, you know we've got connection to the country and bush but really we're one of the most urbanized societies on the planet so i was like you know what like i'm gonna write a book about doing it in people's backyards to go like you can do this you can do all the things that i'm doing here on a farm and river coach i mean in principle you can't keep pigs or a dairy cow in an apartment in bondi but you can still connect in some way to food production and to the food that you eat uh, and and your community through food so I, um, I guess the, like the, the, the key kind of things would be, one, cook. Like, just cook. Like, that's, that's the starting point for me because, like, why would you grow your own food if you didn't know how to cook it, you know? And because if you cook, you'll start cooking with, like, supermarket produce. You know, you'll be like, wow, well, I made this from scratch and you'll have this baseline of flavour. And then if you bring in, like, growing your own food, all of a sudden you'll, you'll have the cooking skills and then you'll be like, you grew your own herbs or you might grow your own tomatoes and go, whoa, I'm cooking from scratch, but it's like, this is like a totally different thing now. Like this tastes even better. And I've got this like ownership of it. Like there's, um, I like to talk about like the sixth flavor, which is, uh, you know, I, I don't even know what the other ones are, like sour, sweet, salty, and umami. The, you know, the five kind of flavors. And the sixth one to me is smugness. And that's <laughs> like, if you grow something yourself, like there's, there's a flavor to it that just like when you're eating it, and it's so powerful. Like even if you like, you know, just grow like a little pot of herbs, a little pot of parsley on your kitchen windowsill or at your back door. If you make like a spaghetti bolognese or something like that and you just like, you bought everything else from the shop, but then right at the last minute you go out and pick that little bit of parsley that you grew yourself, chop it up, sprinkle it on the top. Like the smugness flavor is so powerful. It's like you grew everything in that dish. It's like you raised the beef, you like, you dug the clay and turned it into the bowl and fired it in the ceramics. You know, you whittled <laughs> the, the, the spoon, the fork. Uh, and so, and you have that connection to food. And that, I mean, this is like another kind of crazy rabbit hole, but like, I'll just touch on it briefly is that, that when you have that connection to it and that ownership of it, you're actually kind of very psychologically open to receiving the nutrition of it. Mm. And our mental, um, mental approach or how our brain perceives the food that we're putting in our bodies actually has a very profound physiological effect. Uh, and so that's, and that's why I've kind of like accredited like cultural grace too, like people saying grace at the beginning of a meal because it makes you open and appreciative. And we're now, but in our kind of like crazy diet culture, we're not appreciating food. We're demonizing certain things of food, like sugar's bad, fat's bad, carbs are bad, grains are bad. And so inevitably when you do fall off the bandwagon for that, like those very restrictive diets and you go and you're like oh, on a paleo diet and you smash like a slice of pizza, you go, oh, it did make me really sick. Because as you're eating it, you're going, oh, this is bad for me. I'm going to feel terrible. I'm going to feel terrible. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so when you connect and grow it yourself, like you, you, you're so much more open to receiving that nutrition, which sounds a bit woo-woo, but there's actually some like some legit science behind that, like our psychological approach to the food that we eat. So it's not just like a crazy Christian thing, like saying, you know, like grace <laughs> before meals. It's actually like there is some neurological science behind the benefit for that. But it, like that's probably a separate conversation. That's, a, that's, a, that's <laughs> a sustainable way of eating as well. Yeah. Like, even when you demonize food groups and you restrict yourself to, uh, you know, 
a, a restricted diet. Of, I mean, even paleo. Yeah. Because you've got that restriction, the stuff you eat, you end up fucking disliking anyway. Yeah. Because it's all you got. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you- Steak you, and greens again. To the way you can <laughs> prepare it. And yeah. then you do your five meals for that day. And then you, I see it all the time, these posts of like- uh, week, meal prep. Week oh. meal prep. Oh. And I'm like- well, How can imagine you do that? Day seven <laughs> oh. of that fucking same chicken with <laughs> oh, beans, man. and it all looks nice and fresh and yummy. And you're like, imagine day day six or day seven of that. Got to hit like, their macros. Five <laughs> <laughs> son. Oh yeah, same I'm, meal I'm, every day. I'm repulsed by days. that when I see that on Instagram. Like, oh. the, like man, you poor person, you know. And but it's, <laughs> but it's like anything as well. It's like when you have that that narrow window of what you eat. Like you you, you don't benefit from it. Like no. it's like our diet's so much more complicated than like carbohydrate, fat, and protein. It's like in like in movement or any sort of physical practice. Like if you just yeah, you can get like really good doing deadlifts, just doing deadlifts. Uh, but then like if you try to do a pull-up or try to sprint or do something else, like you're not, that's not what you've been training for mm. and you're probably going to like injure yourself because all you do is deadlifts. Or even deadlifting with someone else. I mean, if you're meal prepping like that, yeah. you just ostracise yourself from everyone around you. Like you can't go out to dinner and yeah. hang out with people. You're going to have what, lunch and you yeah. pull out your little thing and everyone's sharing yeah. meals and you're like, that's in itself has a, a very negative uh, effects on, on the health, you know, yeah. especially psychological health. Which is all good if you're like a 20-year-old bachelor gym bro, you know. Yeah. But like if you've got a family and the kid's like, I want spaghetti bolognese to do, I'm like, oh, spaghetti bolognese is not quite where I'm at nutritionally right yeah. now. Like, Zoodles. Don't that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do kids feel about Zoodles? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, calm down, kids. There's Zoodles for everyone. Don't worry. Oh, more the merrier. Um, but to go back to your to your original question, Joe, yeah, it's um, would like – if two things would be to like just have a crack like start cooking it's not hard like we um you know we kind of like overcomplicate it especially in the social media age and you kind of touched on this a bit earlier t like where it's like you know we don't it's not it's about how it tastes not how it looks you know and, and like we see all these like extravagant crazy dishes through food influences on instagram but like really like one of the best things you can eat is like a, a brown beef stew like that's mm. you know that's like comfort food plus you know and it's like incredibly nutrient dense but you know you put like a bowl of like brown stew you know a spoon of brown stew in a bowl and put it on instagram people are like what's that dog food like mm, yeah. what, what's that shit like that's not getting yeah. any likes like the stew gross <laughs> Uh, and so we like we and we kind of have elevated like chefs and food influencers onto this pedestal where only master chefs and like professional chefs can cook, whereas really like preparing very simple food like it doesn't need special twists, it doesn't need ten ingredients. Like it's if you get the bare bones basics, it's so easy. Uh, and if you're like wanting to start but you're not sure where, like I'd say get a slow cooker and let it do the work for you. I think that was like the first thing I actually commented on on a JB post oh, i've been following you guys for a while and i saw like you put a picture of a slow cooker up or something no like i put that? a post up it was like nutrition tip and it was like yeah if you saw i, I can't remember it was like get yourself a slow cooker yeah you yeah, can't yeah. Fuck i was it like two, oh, three these guys no i'm like <laughs> preaching to the converted i was like i put mine on a pedestal and lay floral wreaths around it and it's just like steaming 24 hours a day seven <laughs> days a week because you know you don't you're like you don't have to do much and like the, for me that slow cookery is the real alchemy of cookery where you can just take some like gnarly root vegetables and a bit of liquid and, and some like gristly meat and chuck it in this thing go to work come home and it's just like your house is full of this delicious aroma and you're in this like lip smacking deliciousness for for your dinner so i went the other route oh thermomix no no <laughs> <laughs> other side of the spectrum oh it was a it's a clay egg 
You know, oh. the clay. Oh, yeah, know, yeah, 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 yeah. you got to yeah. do the charcoal. Oh, beautiful. Fucking hell, you can't walk away from that thing ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to sit yeah, on yeah. it for six hours. It's killer. <laughs> and then you might bring something out that tastes good. Although I'm getting better at it. Yeah. It has taught me how to, how to like, cook slowly, like, properly. Yes. But fuck, it's been a love hate relationship. There's That's a whole. You're not doing seven days back. worth of food prep with that thing. I have like literally <laughs> turned beef beef ribs into like a a carbonized shell. Like, <laughs> I opened it up. It's like and I was like Terminator oh Two Judgment Day. Yeah, yeah, it was like yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just white bone and like uh. black sh- like a black like framework of uh, uh. fibers. But the bottom was just this white, pure white fat. Oh. And I was like, I'm going to fucking use every last bit of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I made this. Yeah. I made this, God damn it. <laughs> it was smoked. And I was like, okay, this fat's good. The fat's good. But yeah, that was, uh, that I'm working on on this thing and it's it's a real challenge. It's a whole new art. Great. You know, yeah. like any sort of like fire, fire cookery, it's, it's kind of Smoking like going from like buying stuff, stuff off the shelf to hunting for venison. Like it's, you've got to be so engaged in it, you know, yeah. like you, you can't just sit and forget it or like turn a dial on the oven. Like you've got to like hmm. be got to driving tinker. that sucker, Const- you know. Constantly tinkering. I do, I do like tinkering. Right? There's yeah. like the time we, uh, for our Christmas party, we're like, what are we going to cook? And we're like, fuck it, let's get some pigs on spits. Yeah. So we've got three spits <laughs> and three pigs. Or two pigs and a lamb. And then we're like, all right, what do we need? I guess we need some fucking charcoal and whatever. And then we might, luckily, <laughs> luckily my brother turned all up. In. Oh, um, Alan. We had Alan, Big Al. Big Kowalski, Al. Yeah. Um, who, like, who, who's a, what's he got? Like a, a Macedonian background. So uh-huh. like, he I knows how to cook the pig. Shit before. Yeah, so he's like, I'll give it a crack. And then he's like, i got to go. And then we're like, Abe, my brother, like sort it out. And he's like trying to figure out how much fucking coals and man, it was so hard. Yeah, yeah. Right, and there's like 120 people at the party. Like, when when's we the pig going to be ready? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. sweating. But it, we are. Uh, we were burnt it. We burnt it at first. Yeah, and then we had to pull the charcoal out. Oh, sorry, the, we had the, a pack full of hot coals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we put that on the concrete. Like, okay, it's good now. We'll just sit that over there. And then it must have been heating up, like um, air pockets in the concrete. And the concrete started exploding. <laughs> and sending shards this is of going hot, well. Hot embers into the party, party, and people were like, "Oh my god!" Like yeah. Luckily, and everyone's like, fucking oh, smashed. Uh, so it, it was like a war zone. That's one of those pizzas. <laughs> Man, but it turned out all right in the end. Oh, it did. It did. They you always it. get there in the end. Well, by the time that was ready, everyone was starving. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's true. Like I, I mean, even you would have. I remember your original stories from when you got your, your clay egg, you were just like ruining things. Yeah. And then now you've, you've had some great successes. Yeah. And so that's kind of what you're saying, isn't it? Like even if you start cooking with simple ingredients that you yeah. can get from the supermarket yep. with the fucking gas or electric stove you have at home, which is simple to use. Yep. But as you go through this process, you learn yeah. and you can gradually step up the complexity. And don't beat yourself up. You yeah. know, like that, that watching like um, reality TV cooking programs conditions us to think that when we create or cook something in the kitchen that is then going to be judged by a panel of experts you know like like oh i just made this thing for dinner but what would the master chef judges think of it who gives a toss yeah you know it's like if my kids guys say, overweight yeah yeah <laughs> stuff you made you know it's like if, if my kids uh you know put food on the table like i don't like this i'm gonna go that's dinner you know i don't care what you like, you know it's fine there's nothing wrong with it like this is what we're eating tonight like there's this expectation that 
as a home cook, cooking for a family, that we need to be like cooking restaurant dishes, like these layered, like multi-component, you know, like the kind of thing you'd want to eat when you eat out. But like the the meat and three veg thing, you know, it's like, oh, meat and three veg, so traditional, so classic. Like it works, <laughs> you know, delicious. and it's and it's delicious, <laughs> you know, and it's nutritious and it's relatively straightforward to prepare, you know, like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. We've kind of had this explosion of home food culture where all of a sudden, you know, we're looking at the, you know, traditions in our, you know, uh, of like, meat and three veggies being really passe and boring and these things but and then we're trying to like try to take on all these different cuisines and all this different style of cookery but you're making a rod for your own back keep it simple like it's not going to be judged it's not a restaurant meal your kids aren't paying clients they're your kids you know it's a, they're just going to eat what you put in front of them uh, and so it's an art it's an know? art yeah, yeah totally and it's a whole lifetime to to master it yeah you do it that's, that's right three times a day exactly every day, forever which is one of the for me has have having been someone that did like my chef's trade i'm eternally grateful for that because it's like a trade that i can practice three times a day you know it's like if you're a builder you build your house once you know and your family lives in it but like i get to feed my kids like and i get to take control of their nutrition as best i can i mean they still eat you know fish and chips from the takeaway shop every now and then and barbecue sauce and calamari and pizza as bowie likes to tell me uh but you know i can make things from scratch you know and it's not complicated to me and like i can prepare dinner for my family and it's not something that i stress out about or have to worry about and i can see that that you know is helpful helping nourish them and thrive so yep. i love it so joe's been joe your dad was a was he horticulturist still is uh, I mean, yeah well he was he is a horticulturist yeah owner a, a nursery yeah joe's been fighting uh, the urge of gardening for a while Ooh. but he has planted his first Scarred. too busy getting the, big uh, <laughs> <laughs> fashion fools on the mats no go on <laughs> he um he planted his first passion fruit vine the other day so nice. i heard. Um, if you had advice for him where to... And he's got a veggie patch going now. Yes. Got a veggie patch going. What, yep. uh, what advice would you give to a first-time gardener? I would say uh, start small and start easy. Like we, we kind of live in this um, this backyard blitz culture where you're like, you sit down. You want to be Jamie Jury. You want to be Jamie Jury. I'm like, doing the jacked bit. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Now he's going to do the garden bit <laughs> yeah. like and the, and the manpower bit, like yeah. the Velcro-sided pants. Like every gardener should have a pair. Uh, but like we kind of have this, you know, you sit down and yourself or your partner, you go, yeah, we're going to start a veggie garden. Sick. We've never done it before. Uh, so we're going to go to Bunnings. We're going to buy two grand worth of stuff. Like <laughs> we're going to go mad for this weekend. We're going to stress ourselves out. We're going to plan it all out and then we're going to flop on the couch Sunday night exhausted and over it and we're not going to look at it again for two months and we're going to expect that like that's going to produce food because we put a frenzied two-day effort into it whereas really like gardening is something that takes a little bit of attention a lot it's like a it's like you don't need to you don't need to backyard blitz it sure every now and then you might need to put a couple of hours in especially you know change of seasons springtime all that but really once your garden's up and going you're like you Go out, check it every morning, give it a bit of a water, see where some stuff's at, plant some stuff, half an hour a day. It doesn't take a lot of effort. Uh, but if you've never gardened before, I like to encourage people to start with the culinary herbs, just in pots, you know, just like get some good potting mix, go down to bunnies, get a couple of, you know, terracotta pots or, you know, or just ones that people throw out in hard rubbish and get some robust herbs like, uh, like thyme, like rosemary, parsley, things like that, things that you're going to use in your cooking. 
And because they cost a lot in the supermarket. Yeah, exactly. Don't buy the fucking herbs that you've never eaten. Yeah, exactly. Because like, I've done. I did that in the past. Oh, what's that? That looks Ooh, good. We've got to use that. Yeah. Oh, that's, I'm going to use that on everything. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, it grows. It's yeah. the only one that and takes off. And you're like, what um, is that? I can't yeah. fucking remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so start small with the culinary herbs, and then once you like have kept your robust herbs alive at the back door for like a couple of weeks, and you're feeling comfortable with that, I'd then go into like cut and come again, cut, cut and come again greens uh things like you know like little loose head salads rocket mizuna things that you know and again like Spinach, most yeah exactly you know. and like most seed uh retailers like the diggers club will sell like something as like a salad mix or a masculine mix kale's so, good kale's until you good. have to eat it yeah like, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it goes great in the winter garden you're like wow look at all this kale yeah, look and then you're like oh, i've been pre- look at all i've that been kale i've got for the first time i've been like blanching it Ooh. before I kind of fry it up with yeah, some yeah. butter and garlic. Yeah. And it's a completely different experience. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, man, why? Because I used to just fry it up and then you're like, it's kale. Less of a jaw workout. Yeah, oh, now it's God. like, that's it's delicious. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, just, man, and those kind of things, like when you, when you go and buy greens from the supermarket, they're just like, they're so crap. Like greens deteriorate so rapidly from harvest to consumption. Um, but when you can grow them yourself, like you're only cutting what you need, like you just take a pair of scissors out. Like we just, I plant like a, a kind of square meter of garden bed to, to just cut and come again greens every two weeks or so in our place. So it's just this like staggered thing. So as one's kind of getting cut down, the other one's getting ready. and But then the other one will grow back after the first cut down. So we've always got like wherever I live, I try to have like a little salad bar set up. Because even if you're not growing anything else, it's so good to like get a good bit of meat from the butcher shop, chuck some spuds in the oven and go, what are we going to do for greens? I'll just duck out the back and cut a fresh salad. And it's like, it's peppery and crunchy and vibrant and alive. And it tastes amazing. Like it's not suddenly like, oh, I've got to eat the salad. It's like, wow, this, this stuff is living and, uh, and fantastic. And I, like, and I actually enjoy it. Um, so that would be my tips for first time gardeners, like the, as the most like bare bones, like start small, like don't do the backyard blitz thing. Don't turn your backyard into a hundred square meters of like market garden. Cause that is like a real recipe for failure. Yeah. Like, in, like if you never have done it close it before, to the house too, is always a good thing. Totally. Don't like, put it up at the back. And that's garden. a real permacultural principle. right? Yeah, like yeah, where yeah. It's like where your foot traffic goes, where your attention is, put it there because yeah. like it's it's see it every right day. back corner and you go out the front door every day and you never go past it. Like if it's sick, you're not going to know. No, like you just like, because plants, you know, people are like oh, I can't keep plants alive, but they they give us some pretty, pretty um significant clues when they're unhappy before <laughs> they before they die. Like they start to wilt, they turn brown. Like you can bring it back from that. That's fine, you know. If it's but it's saying I'm thirsty, I need food. And the other the other thing would be to like, and I kind of touched on this a little bit before, would be to um to think about your soil. You know, it's uh like concentrate on like enriching your soil as best as possible because I know so many people kind of fail uh, or, or stumble in their early forays as gardeners because they like, they go and get the seedlings and they like peel back the grass on a patch of lawn and they just chuck them in there and they go oh you know they died or they put it in like a, a pot with crappy potting mix and go oh the plant died I'm a, you know I don't have a green thumb I kill stuff it's like well no you like you just set yourself up for failure because that soil is inert there's no there's no nutritional value to it for a plant there's no structure to the soil um, and really one of the best ways to get starting with that and I saw you guys got one downstairs I didn't have a good looking at is the worm farm Ooh, classic he's gonna love to show you around yeah, the worm farm. doesn't doesn't take much doesn't take much operation <laughs> See that? you know that's yeah, a worm yeah that's a, that's a ten thousand head of livestock down there boys uh, and you know they eat your food scraps they turn it into that like that thick black worm casting you know they create the the juice which is like the ultimate kind of 
liquid feed for plants and you know and you're and you're stopping stuff from going into landfill so instead of putting all your veggie scraps in the bin like chuck them to the worms and in return they give you this like hyper nutritious soil conditioner and if you're planting seedlings like i love that you know you saw jeff doing that as well as like when you pull them out of the little punnet get like a handful of that worm casting and like put put it in that first you know put your seedling in that handful of worm casting scrunch you know gently squeeze it up like a little ball and plant that whole thing Mm. so as that plant like starts to grow out of the shape that it was in the punnet it's just got all this food around it. Like, it's like, oh, actually, I'm doing really good here. Because usually you put it in a punnet, you put it in some, like, poorly prepared soil with no life in it. It's like, oh, this is a desert. There's nothing here for me. And I'm, like, vulnerable and stressed already. And I'm like, oh, I'm dead. So, yeah. The, sure. the casting is the the hard stuff that's, like, it's, it's their waste. Oh, the dry yeah. stuff. So yeah, you've yeah, got yeah. the liquid worm and poo. then it's just the yep. dry. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got yeah. the wee and the poo, my yeah. kids call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Worm wee and worm poo. Yep, and both of them, like... Gold for the garden. Yeah. 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 And they, you know, and it's like they're turning your scraps into that stuff. You know, like you don't have to go and use chemical fertilizers uh, if you've got this kind of stuff. And, you know, if you've got more space, go to composting. You know, it's uh, a little skin on top of the soil is always good. Yeah. Mulch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Protect it because, you know, soil soil likes moisture. You know, it's uh, take the biome. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. To, you know, say if you've, especially in the Australian summer, you know, like if you're, if you think just like peeling your backyard veggie garden, having no protection for the soil, like that top 10 centimetres of soil is just going to be desiccated. It's going to be yep. wasteland. Like there'll be still life deeper down, but you could have life all the way up to the top of that soil level if it was protected from like those 40 degree, you know, ultra UV days. Yeah. <laughs> you, um, what did you do after, after, uh, River Cottage. I, uh, I did a lot of soul searching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like stood there like, you know, wondering, you know, questioning my like role in the world because I'd very, you know, for four years had very closely tied my like worth and, and focus on, on being a part of that. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I went to this kind of like, you know, uh, mourning phase from that, you know, where I was like, uh, um, you know, what am I going to do now? And my wife was really heavily pregnant with our second kid and, so we're down on the south coast and we're like, well, you know, what are we doing down here? Like, are we here? Because neither of us have family connections there. And so we're like, are we here just because we came here for a job or, or are we here because we genuinely love it? And so right before the birth of our second kid in that kind of crazy, stupid way that I never thought I'd do before my wife was actually pregnant, we moved in like the third trimester yeah. we did it for both of our kids. Like, I don't know why it happens. It just does. And, um, it happens a lot though. It does, yeah, yeah. If you want to be in the place, yeah. if you want to be, you want yeah, the baby yeah, yeah. totally. Because yeah. I like we, I saw people do it before we had our first kid. I was like, like, you guys crazy. are crazy. Yeah, I, like, life. I would never do that. <laughs> and there's like my wife's like third trimester of our first kid. She's like, I need to move. I'm gonna, I, I need to leave <laughs> this house. It's full of mold. It's like it doesn't get any sunlight. I'm like, okay, babe, we're, we're gonna do it. So we, um, you know, we kind of went back to our both of our kind of like family homes uh, or areas like the Hunter Valley for me, Melbourne for her. And, you know, like I thought, well, if we were to stay in Bermagui, which is where we were living, you know, I could have like, I've just gone to dropping schnitzels at the local pub as like a chef, you know, like and and done it and survived uh, and, and made ends meet. But I thought, well, you know, I probably got a little bit of a shot at this kind of media career maybe, uh, but it's not going to come to me down here. Uh, so I thought well, I need to move to a more populous region, and um, and that kind of worked out, yeah. you know. And so I, like I pursued it and uh, managed to 
get some really good work with the ABC, uh, which I which I'm still doing now. And you're on the Catalyst, yeah? I, I am. I am. Nice. Uh, whenever the whenever oh. Catalyst does something with Love any sort show. of food angle, Great. I get I get called up for that, and uh, I do back roads uh, for them as well, which is like a. It's the best job ever, really. Two good it's, gigs. Yeah. yeah, two great gigs. Like it's um And they actually like their well, I know with the catalyst anyway, it's got a real message that it sends that I think is an important one. Yeah. Yeah. You know? well, I mean it's how me, about the um the budget cuts to the ABC? Oh, it's brutal. Now? You know, it's like and unfortunately It's scary. It is. Like it's really because really, really like it's a it's an organization in decline, mm. you know, and it's dying a death of a thousand cuts. And it's been such a, a cultural pillar. Uh, in Australia, because it gives voices to 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 all groups, you know, um, as part of its charter, uh, groups that might not have any sort of commercial interest mm. in making, te- you know, or there might not be any commercial impetus to tell those stories, but they're just great stories, you know. That's that's about you know, and um, it's an accountability yeah hub like yeah, it holds totally. like, it holds our government accountable, people that are doing nice that's why shit they hate accountable. It. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's why that's why they're that's why they're trying to to massively defund it. So I think, you know, as we live in a society with a, a less and less prominent um, ABC, I think Australia Australia's kind of cultural, uh, you know, diversity and richness is in decline. It'll suffer. Yeah, yep. it will suffer, absolutely. Like you, almost, you can almost see it happening now. Oh, I mean. Absolutely. And, I mean, you look at that, you know, as, as a response to some of those budget cuts, they've been doing all these, like, amazing retrospective programs where they look at some of the iconic programs that the ABC produced over the last 20, 30 years, and you go, wow, that show was, like, that show was a part of my childhood. Mm. And you look and you go, wow, they did some really, like, crazy and amazing things on that, and now that'll never be possible. Like even yeah. now, like things you know, like re- like recovery and things like that, which were like cool programs, and they like they did off the wall stuff that you know a commercial network would never touch. Uh, but you know that's a thing of the past now, and so like they're they're kind of like you know drawing in the the boundaries and like and focusing on things like journalism and things like that because it's increasingly unsustainable and unfeasible for them to to produce Australian content. So. I mean, for me, like that's I've thrown my hat in with the ABC, so I'm like looking at the lot writing on the wall for that, and kind of going, well, I can't rely on that as a career anymore. You know, it's like a bit mm. of cream, it's a bit of nice silver double gold cream um, <laughs> when it comes, but you know, that might be for four to six weeks of the year that I get that income. Right. You know, so it's uh, I want to maintain some sort of flexibility so I can take that work when it arises. But um, but yeah, we're we're going through like a little bit of a re-equalisation now. My wife and I. She's back in the workforce. She's working in a restaurant for the first time in five years since the wow. birth of our two kids. Mm. And we're just kind of having this shifting of roles, which is like, you know, you adapt. Nice. You know, like life throws stuff at you. You, you can either like, you know, get bent out of shape by it or you can kind of go, okay, well, this is the new playing field and you can assess and move on, which is, uh, you know, a critical part for survival, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> Bro, we're um we're gonna wrap it up there. <laughs> We've actually done a double episode. I was about to say, I was like, it's, it's all right. half an hour, hour or so here. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, we've done two hours and eleven and a half minutes. Yeah, oh, thanks, boys. Yeah, yeah solid. I'm warming up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, um, got you. The yeah, well, I mean, it's it, we can get. We'd love to have you back oh, anytime. Pleasure. Come Thank back, you. train up a storm. Yeah, um, yeah, and then come back on the show. I would really like to come and do the rooster kill. Yeah, next year I think that'd be sick. So. Um, I I'm guess serious. you can share some information with us totally. about that when it's relevant. Yeah, yeah. 
Is there any avenues where people can get in touch with you or that you'd like to send them to? Uh, I guess my um, the best way to get in touch with me is through my Instagram account, which is uh, underscore Paul underscore West underscore, which is what happens when you've got a name like Paul West, which is like, you know, <laughs> I've never met John Smith, but I've actually met seven other Paul Wests. So I think it's like, it's the true John Smith name. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, and I mean, I'm not like hugely uh, active on it. Like as, as you guys probably saw, if you, you know, had a bit of a, a perusal of social media, but I'm lurking there in the background and if you want to connect and see what's going on uh you know i'd love you know any jb listeners if you're ever down on the south coast bermagui god's country uh then feel free to drop me a line and i'll point you in the direction of a few top spots oh nice. <laughs> yeah man i uh, will definitely do a road trip down there and i'd love to come put on a workshop or yeah teach some jits or something yeah yeah, yeah. i think there'd be uh i think it'd be really well received down there you know we kind of touched on that earlier it's like you know, that's one of the reasons why I want to be up here and establish a relationship with you with you guys here because, like, I really I love what the JB is about. I think you guys are doing amazing work um, and it really resonates with what I'm about. It'll be our next JB affiliate. Yeah, the, the Deep South, Let's Deep talk. South JB. We're talking yeah. career. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, so, well, who knows? First conversation to many. Yeah. <laughs> Unreal. <laughs> Mate, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Pleasure, thank boys. You. Thanks for having me. Thanks, T-Bone. Thank you, Joe.